Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, today Rado Talks your episode 47 of the podcast and this is kind of another normal month. We're going to do some games of interest and then revisit a top 10, uh, my top 10 Uwe Rosenberg games. I'll talk about 11 through 22 in short order and then there will be an insane amount of questions. Oh my gosh, you people totally buried the uh, mailbag this month and so we'll be spending quite a bit of time there and in case we don't end up answering a question, you might have had on your mind, you can send new questions in for next month to questions at rotto.com, as always. And so that's pretty much it. But that's just what's going to be on the podcast. There's actually quite a bit going on in Rotto land beyond the confines of me talking into this microphone. Specifically, I am now starting my eighth year of doing Rotto Runs Through, which is amazing to me. And it is a fairly momentous year. Some folks are actually going to be a little disappointed in me. I'm sorry about that. But for the first time, I am actually going to start doing paid previews of Kickstarter titles. I actually made this announcement a few days ago, and there's a link in the show notes for this to the announcement where I talk at great length about that decision. And not only that, but a bunch of new shows that I will be rolling out for year eight as well to pry and provide a little bit more value to the show for the backers out there who keep me running through all those games. But that that's for something you can check out later when you're in front of your browser. For now, let's just start talking about games right after this. Okay, everybody, a bunch of new titles, 20 of them, if I counted correctly. So let's not uh, waste any time. Let's start talking about Alter Quest, which is going to be the latest design from the Sadler Brothers. Who are, is it, I want to say Adam and Brady. Yes, Adam and Brady Sadler, who have been on a pretty good winning streak for the last few years. I guess they got their start at Fantasy Flight Games working on X-Wing and stuff like that. But they did the Warhammer Quest adventure card game, which is now Heroes of Terranoth, the adventure card game. Uh, We were really keen on Walking Dead No Sanctuary, and I haven't played them, but I hear good things about Street Masters and Brook City. So uh, this is a Two brothers are really putting out a lot of great stuff, but I think I'm more interested in Alter Quest than any of the other ones. This is another fantasy game where we're going on adventures and whatnot and rolling a lot of dice, but unlike their previous games, they do tend to lean on the dice for resolving actions. Hey, we figure out what we want to do, and then let's roll the dice and see if it works. Never that keen on it. This is a game that features a lot of dice rolling, but now I believe we are drafting those dice instead, and that really flips the script. I already love these guys. They have smart designs, just don't quite make games for me and Jen, but this one sounds like it might turn it all around, so I am definitely going to be on the lookout for Alter Quest. Then there is Dice Quest, which is interesting. It's from the design of Lewis and Clark. Um, you know, and so a fantasy dice drafting game. What's this? Two fantasy dice drafting games in a row? I'm in heaven. Uh, so, oh, I don't know how to say your French name. Uh, uh, Cedric uh, Chabossi? 
I'm not quite sure how to say your name, but um, Lewis and Clark is a phenomenal design. Really, really great stuff. And for him to now switch gears and go into high fantasy and uh, be leveraging dice, dice drafting, well, what's going to be the better game? Alter Quest or Dice Quest? I don't know, but I want to check out both of them because they both sound right up my alley. So that's very, very cool. Then there is floor plan. And now this is from the same publisher who gave us last year the immensely popular mega hit Welcome To, which was not a roll and write, but a flip and write, where you flip cards and then write stuff on paper based on what the random seed was. And, you know, it's a really good game. But now we're moving on to floor plan, and they are doing a proper roll and write where we're rolling dice and then writing stuff down on a piece of paper to see how well we do. And the interesting thing is, what we're writing on our piece of paper is we are actually designing the floor plan of a house. You know, trying to put in living rooms and kitchens and driveways and bathrooms and all that. And from what I've seen of the screenshots, this looks like it'll be so compelling because it gives you such a a measure of freedom and personal creativity. This is not you doing a roll and write where you're just trying to fill in a lot of boxes and making decisions along those lines. You're making decisions about how to actually do proper architectural layout. That could be really, really cool. So I'm very, very keen to check out Floor Plan when it becomes available. Then you've got Key Market. Now, I've already done a run-through for Key Market uh, because this game, it came out almost a decade ago, nine years ago. Um, And, uh, you know... Many people consider it the high watermark of Richard Breeze's Keedom series. Now, I don't. I still think Key Flower is, you know, the, the 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 best key game that's ever come out. But Key Market is a pretty solid second. And the only reason I don't have my Key Market anymore is because it had been out of print for so long. And Richard Breeze kept repeatedly saying, "I don't know if I'm ever going to reprint it." It commanded such high second or you know used market prices. I eventually couldn't say no and sold mine a few years ago. Because I needed the money, folks. Um, but I, I, I gambled correctly because it is coming back now. A, a brand new second edition. And apparently there's going to be tweaks and new gameplay worked in. I'm not really quite sure what that's all about. But Key Market is a phenomenal game. If you don't believe me, just go watch my run through and decide for yourself. But it's finally going to be coming back. And that is very, very exciting. I guess I had a very successful Kickstarter run. So I don't know, maybe we won't actually see it until 2020. Maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but... I'm very excited to get another copy back because I sadly said goodbye to my first edition. But now I'll get the second. Next up, there is Lanterns, Dice, Lights in the Sky. And now, I don't think I ever did a run-through of the original Lanterns. Did I? Uh, we played it, and we thought it was nice, but uh, it was a really interesting, not tile-laying game, a card-laying game where you lay down cards as tiles. It was cool because when you put a card down on the table, the directions it was facing to all the players, to the north, south, east, and west of the communal board we're creating, uh, everybody got different income based on what was facing them. So it was a clever, interesting puzzle, but when we played as a two-player game, it just didn't sing. It, it felt like a lot of the game was missing because there were few players you know, uh, using that central communal mechanism. But now the uh, sequel is coming, and it is a dice game. So, I, I don't really know what that's going to change. Apparently, we're also now doing Tetris Polyomino-style tiles, and instead of just square cards as well. So, the theme is the same, but I suspect probably a, a, an interesting twist on the gameplay. 
And like I said, the original design was great, it just wasn't great for two. Let's see how good this sequel is. Lanterns, dice, lights in the sky. Then we move on to Brussels, 1897. And now, if you're a longtime fan of my show, you know Jen and I were super keen on Brussels, 1893. A really brilliant... Um, oh man, there's so much going on in that game. I'm just going to call it a really brilliant Euro with a million different really neat, cool mechanisms. We're now getting a sequel, which is one of those, uh, you know, streamlined, tightened, you know, like kind of mini versions where, you know, they, they take out all the extemporaneous fluff. Because yeah, um, Brussels 1893 was a very dense game that just went off in a million different directions. So it'll be interesting to see what we get with this sequel. And um, what's more interesting is the designer of Brussels 1893 is designing this as well. What's his name? Uh, Entian uh, Esperman. And who, by the way, a lot of people kept saying I should have named him on my one-hit wonders list that I did the previous month, my top ten one-hit wonders. And I'm glad I didn't because he's bringing out a sequel to his original game. Not really much is known uh, about what's new about this game, except for the fact that it's not being published by Pearl, who is one of my favorite publishers in the market. I mean, that if a, if Pearl is on the box, you know it's going to be an amazing game. So anyway, Antion got his, the rights to his game back, and now he's basically uh, co-founded his own publisher to do the sequel. So... That's really cool and exciting, and it'll be very interesting to see. I, it'll be interesting for me, just as an academic uh, study, to see, well, uh, does 1893 surpass 1897, or vice versa? How much of what I loved about 1893 came from Antion as opposed to Pearl? I don't really know. This will make for an interesting lab experiment to, to see the designers stay the same, but switch publishers. Uh, long story short. Uh, Brussels 1893 was amazing, so I expect 1897 to be very, very cool as well. So I'm super excited about it. Then we've got Hamlet. And no, folks, this has nothing to do with the uh, the Shakespearean king, I'm afraid to say. It is about little villages, little hamlets out there in the, in the, in the countryside. And uh, it might be disappointing. I have to admit, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, cool, a Shakespearean-themed game. This is going to be awesome. But I'm still excited about the game anyway because it is from designer David Chirkop. And I am super-duper keen on Dave uh, because we loved and then we held hands. And Pursuit of Happiness is fantastic. He's done a couple of other games that I was very, very uh, impressed by, even if they weren't really Jen's and my cup of tea. But this one very much sounds like our cup of tea because it is a, a village life simulation all about transportation logistics. And uh, maybe that sounds a little dry and dull, but Dave always finds a way to really wend theme into his gameplay. So I'm super keen on checking out Hamlet. Then we can move on to Dungeon Academy, which is cool. It's a dungeon crawler. Uh, it looks like a simple, light little filler of a game. Maybe it'll end up being too light for us, but here's the idea. There, the game comes with a bunch of custom dungeon dice, and what you do is you roll them all and put them into a 3x3 three three grid. And this 3x3 three three grid of randomized dice represents your dungeon because each die face is a is a corridor or um, you know or, or a room that you can go through with different things inside them and so we roll up this randomly generated dungeon and then players try to figure out what is the best um, path that I can plot through this randomly generated dungeon 
This sounds really cool. I really like this core idea. Maybe, like I said, the game will be a little bit too light for us. I'm not sure. It's got a very pleasant, uh, you know, kind of cartoony art style. That's attractive. But uh, that core idea sounds really neat. And I, 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 it's a shame this isn't a visual podcast so I could actually show you because the pictures really kind of sold me on Dungeon Academy. Then we've got Dead Reckoning. And this one, I'm, I'm kind of a little on the fence. Here's the positive. It's from John D. Clare and... Uh, who the designer of a Mystic Veil vale and what was the follow-up? Oh, Edge of Darkness. John D. Clare is now known for his card crafting th- system, where you uh, you t- you build cards over the course of the game by putting transparent slips that layer on top of existing cards to become more and more powerful and do more and more stuff. Mystic Veil vale is amazing, and I cannot wait for the final Edge of Darkness. So I'm excited for John to try and do something else with this system. And it's about pirates. Hooray! I love piracy on the high seas. Okay, so those are the good things. The bad thing is, or the thing I'm worried about is, it's about piracy on the high seas, and it does sound like the game does support the notion of players attacking each other and stealing from each other, because everybody's deck represents their crew of pirates who are they're leveling up over the course of the game, and yeah, we can go and, you know, take out the, the, sink the frigates to, you know, get all our loot, but we can also attack each other, so... I'm really on the fence about this. I know I'm going to love the core conceit, or the core mechanisms, but it's the the take that that might be a problem for us. But I'll keep an eye out for Dead Reckoning. Then we've got Letter Jam. So this is sounds like a really neat game. It's a cross between Hanabi, which is to say, you know, the famous card game where you have a hand of cards and you can't see what your cards are, but everybody else can. And everybody else is giving you clues to help you figure out what's in your hand. And we're all working cooperatively to try to ensure that, uh, you know, everybody can make sense of what they're trying to do. Um, not, this is not a hobby thing. Uh, this is Letter Jam because it takes that idea, but now everybody has a hand of cards that are letters. And we're all trying to spell a word cooperatively. And I'm trying to figure out, I can't see what letters I've got in my hand, but other players are giving me hints. I think the hints come in the form of other words that could be spelled. Or something like that. Long story short... It sounds like it's going to be very, very cool. I do worry that maybe it's going to be something that's better with more, but to be fair, Hanabi does work well as a two-player game. And this is from publisher um, uh, Czech Games Edition, CGE, and they gave us Codenames, which is a party game that works phenomenally well at two. So I am cautiously optimistic. And I don't know, folks, it's starting to get more and more to the point where I have to stop saying I don't like word games. Um, I used to think I hated them because I I hate Scrabble. Uh, But now I'm excited about a Hanabi meeting. Scrabble game. I think the secret sauce is cooperative play. So all the pressure to come up with words isn't on just my shoulders. Neat idea. Cannot wait to try Letter Jam. Then we've got um, uh, Maracaibo. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. It is another big box Euro, and I uh, don't really know much about it. You know, goods conversion, uh, you know, harvesting, all that kind of Euro-y type stuff. You know, getting cubes and converting cubes into other cubes, that sort of thing. I'm not interested in it because of that. I'm interested in it because it is the next big box design from Alexander Pfister. And 
man, it really feels like Fister can do no wrong. He has been on an unbroken winning streak ever since he kind of burst out onto the scene a few years ago. I would imagine for most people, currently his high watermark is Great Western Trail, and that is certainly an amazing design, but everything he's done has been good. And in several of his games, particularly his lighter games, he has been experimenting over the last few years with the idea of bringing narrative content into what are more traditionally dry, uh, what do you call them, um, Jace's, just another soulless Euro. I mean, he did that with Oh My Goods, and he did that with Tybor the Builder. And now, he is doing that, bringing narrative storytelling into a big box heavy Euro, uh, which is what Maracaibo offers. I'm super stoked about this. Storytelling stuff, I mean... Oh, here's what I really want. As much as I'm excited about Maracaibo, I want Alexander Fister to make an Agricola expansion. That's what I'm really waiting for. But while waiting for that, where he brings his cool ideas of, of wending narrative into Euro gameplay, I'll be very happy to try out Maracaibo. So, looking forward to that. And let's move on to... Margraves of Valeria, which is the latest game in the uh, Valeria series. You know, you had, um, oh man, was it? Like three or four different games now. I can't even think of what they all are. Villages of Valeria and, um, oh man, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Okay, now I've got to look it up. You know how, I mean, I, I've, I've played all of them. I thought they've all been very good and this is the latest one. But, oh yeah, Quest of Valeria, Villages of Valeria, and uh, of course, the original which, my stupid brain, come on, uh, Valeria Card Kings. Oh, that's why I couldn't remember, because it's Valeria Card Kings, and everything else is whatever of Valeria, Villages of Valeria, Quests of Valeria, now Margraves of Valeria, but it all started with Cards of Valeria, but it's or Kingdoms of Valeria. They should rename it to Kingdoms of Valeria. But anyway, sorry, that's beside the point. Margraves uh, is the latest one, and it looks to be the biggest, most ambitious game in the series uh, because all these other ones are very small. They don't really have boards. They're just they're just card games, maybe with a little bit of dice and and whatnot. This is a bigger board game, and it uh, is mixing, as I understand it, worker placement with deck building. Uh, which sounds like a really cool combination. I imagine the art is going to be from the Miko again, like all the others, so I'm always excited to see more Miko art. And uh, yeah, it's once again from a designer, Isaias Vallejo. And you know, again, all of the Valeria games have been top-notch. So that's good enough for me. I am there for Margraves of Valeria. Got to find out what a Margrave is, though. Uh, but anyway, moving on, we have uh, Najimi. Or, or no, 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 Namiji. Na- Namiji, N-A-M-I-J-I. As always, folks, you can see the spelling of these in the show notes. uh, Namiji, I'm going to say. This is a sequel, kind of coming out of nowhere, to uh, Antoine Bowes' very popular, very well-loved Takedo. And while I admit Takedo, which was a beautiful time track game where players were competing to have the most restful and relaxing stroll through the Japanese countryside, um, it didn't really work for us because, you know, once as a two-player game, it was a little too light and a little too cutthroat, uh, uh, a Namiji, or Namiji, or whatever it is, I guess is taking that same time track element, but doing something new and different. You're doing different actions on the time track. I think it's not necessarily just a one-spoke time track. I don't know if there's branches or if it loops or stuff like that. Um, but I, I can't deny that the core game was a very solid, well-designed game, even if it wasn't for me and Jen. Um, but I'm definitely interested in seeing this sequel, because 
It'll be gorgeous. It'll be well-crafted. Will it just be something we enjoy a bit more in the Takedo? You know, I've still got to give Antoine Bauza a pass every time he brings a new game out just because of the uh, everlasting genius of Seven Wonders. So I will definitely uh, check out a Namiji when it becomes available. Okay, then we've got Running Quest Soul Raiders. Okay, this is the latest from Andre... Can't remember his last name. He's the uh, designer of Splendor, which of course is a really big deal. Still, AR. No, I'm sorry, Mark Andre. That's why I couldn't. I was remembering his last name, not his first name. So, Mark Andre is back. Everybody except for me and Jen loves Splendor, although I thought it was a solid enough game. Just it was too thematically divorced for us. It was too dry, which is really saying something when you consider my, Jen's and my um, predilection towards the dry. But anyway. This one certainly won't have that problem because it is a uh, fantasy co-op adventure game uh, with a strong narrative structure to it. That's a very, very big change of pace for uh, Mark. I can't wait to see how it works out, especially since this game apparently comes with 1,000 cards, which I assume are all how the narrative is driven. So that sounds like it could be a very big and cool and ambitious project, Running Quest Soul Raiders. Then we move on to Save the Meeples. And folks, I will admit, while normally... I try to curate this list by being relatively confident about the gameplay based on the pedigree of the designer or the publisher or just based on the ideas, uh, the gameplay mechanism ideas represented. Sometimes I'm going to put something on this list just because it sounds like such a crazy idea. It just might work. And that's what this game is, Save the Meeples. It is a worker placement game where we are placing our meeples to do work. But the setting is... It's, it imagines a world where humanity is at war with meeple kind. And we, evil humans, kidnap and press gang meeples into service to work as our characters in our board games. And the meeples, who are self-aware and sentient, are basically, there is a last outpost of meeple freedom. And we humans are coming trying to take the meeples. And I assume that's what we're doing with worker placement. I guess. I don't really know. I don't know how meta this game gets. But the, we are actually, the, you win the game by being the player who can lead the meeples to to um to um safety who can be the savior of the meeples that's really cool um we do it either by fighting back and stopping the advancement uh, the advance of the humans or by making i guess a rocket ship and escaping into outer space to get away from those nasty humans who just want more board game pieces it looks like it has very nice art it sounds like such a sweet charming idea i hope the gameplay lives up to the idea because it does sound very very cool save the meeples then we've got starlight you know, it's interesting. Uh, a few months ago, folks were asking me, you know, well, what's an example of, of a good board game geek description? One that, you know, really captures the imagination and, um, you know, pulls you in and, you know, gets, gets, gets the reader excited. Check out the description for Starlight. I, I will give you uh, the elevator pitch one sentence description of it. Although they, they blatantly say this. Uh, picture this. Gloomhaven meets X-Wing an epic co-op space exploration. Yeah. That I like everything in that sentence. That sounds like a game tailor made for us and I am super duper stoked to learn more about Starlight. Talk about a, a sentence fragment getting pulling me in and making this one of the most exciting games I've heard about in quite a while. 
That's what Starlight is offering. I hope it lives up to that elevator pitch. Then there is Sanctum, which uh, not much is known about this. It's a uh, push your luck, uh, dice rolling, fantasy adventure game where you got to make sure you got the right equipment on your adventures to survive all the evil monsters and whatnot that are out there. Maybe it's pretty standard, straightforward stuff, but there's one reason it makes my list. It's from Czech Games Edition, from CGE. The people behind, you know, some of the best board games of all time. I don't know if this is a heavy game. I don't know if this is a lightweight game. Um, All I know is it's from CGE, and it looks like it's their next big thing they're trying to push that isn't a party game, like Code Names, or what was the one that's up above? Word Jam? Um... Or Letter Jam? It, it sounds like they're kind of getting back to... I mean, I don't know. Is this going to kind of harken back to uh, Galaxy Trucker or Dungeon Pets? Is it set in the same universe? I don't know. But I'm excited. And this one is solely based on the pedigree of the publisher. Very, very keen to learn more. And as I understand it, there is going to be an announcement very soon. Uh, you know, going into more depth. Right now, there's very little information on Board Game Geek. But all I need to know is those three magic letters, CGE. But then let's move on to another game. This is two games on this particular list that I put them on solely because I was so tickled pink by the setting. This game is Trouble in Temple Town, which I don't quite understand the title because here's the setting. Remember the movie Osmosis Jones? I loved that movie. It was a cop buddy movie um, where one of the cops was a white blood cell and the other cop was a, uh, a you know a nasal relief the slow drip um, you know uh, capsule. It was basically a movie set inside the human body uh, that was anthropomorphized to be all you know the the colon is a city and the um, the you know the the lungs are an outer burrow and all that kind of stuff. And our you know our tough cops had to fight off viruses and and, and uncover schemes when I. It was a really cool movie. Didn't get near as much love as it should have, but I really liked it. I always loved the idea of it. Now we are getting a effectively Osmosis Jones the board game because this is another game where I'm not sure if we're police or we're secret agents, but you know, strictly speaking, we're white blood cells trying to fight off viruses, but not in a um, you know an academic genius games kind of way. Not there'd be anything wrong with that. That would be really cool too. Instead, uh, it imagines a, a living, breathing um, you know world full of sentient uh, characters, um, you know, trying to get by inside your body. I loved an Osmosis Jones, so I am predisposed to be intrigued uh, by it in board game form. Don't know much about the gameplay. This is all about the setting in Trouble at Templetown. Then, hey, how about Underwater Cities Expansion? That is the title. Uh, hopefully they are going to update that with a cool and exciting title, but what the heck. That's all you really need to know. An expansion for Underwater Cities. Yes, please. One of the best games of last year uh, from one of you know, the most exciting new publisher um, because you know it's, it's basically Vladimir Suchi's personal game publisher that he and his family are running. I'm very excited to go back under the sea and have some more fun in Underwater Cities. And uh, let's see, then we've got Venice. This one really surprised me. I had no idea it was coming. Uh, From designers Andre Novak and Dave Turchi. I really uh, liked a lot of what both of these guys have done. And I think all their designs are very, very cool. So the idea of the two of them working together on, from the description of it, you know, set in Venice, it kind of sounds like Yokohama, where your your main character is uh, being able to move uh, along a path that you've created for yourself in previous turns. But unlike Yokohama, where the assistant cubes you put out that define where you move, you know, they're just a temporary thing that basically you build a road for yourself and then you travel the road 
road. Now, as I understand it, uh, you, you put those pieces out, but they upgrade over time and they stay on the board. So that sounds like just a cool, neat idea. Uh, you know, building on a really amazing design. Actually, reading it, I, I kind of got the impression it was sort of an Istanbul meets Yokohama sort of thing. Not really quite sure, but these two guys working together, I'm expecting greatness with Venice. And the last one, game number 20 on this list, uh, was actually on Kickstarter last year, and I only mentioned it because I guess it's going to be hitting retail now very soon. Villages of Valeria, Landmarks, and Architects. See, it's always something of Valeria, which is why Valeria Card Kingdom just messes the whole thing up. But Villages of Valeria is getting two new expansions. They both look really great, and you know, hey, they're coming soon. They're going to look good. I'm sure they're going to play good, and so I definitely think it's something of interest. And there you go, folks. 20 new games and expansions, all sounding very cool to me. But now we are ready to move on to talk about Mr. Rosenberg's other games uh, right after this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Now it is time to talk some Rosenberg. And don't worry, folks, who already saw the Top 10 video and were disappointed by a couple of notably absent titles. I will explain my thinking now at long last. Uh, But before that, for folks who haven't seen the Top 10 and don't mind spoilers, here were my Top 10 Uwe Rosenberg games. Uh, Number 10, Agricola, All Creatures Big and Small. Number 9, Or at Labor. Number 8, Newsfjord. 7 was Feast of Odin. 6 was Spring Meadow. Number 5 was At the Gates of Liang. Number 4, Bonanza the Duel. Number 3, Mercator. Number 2, Glass Road. And number 1, Agricola, the granddaddy. And yeah, if you were paying attention there, you might also be wondering, hey, where's Lahav? Hey, where's Caverna? That's what I heard over and over and over again. And I just kept telling folks, wait for the next podcast. And hopefully you are now here and you'll listen to me explain myself. Although it'll take a bit to get to them because those are both great games. Uh, in fact, of all 22 games that designer Uwe Rosenberg has put out over the years, I'm sorry, no, he's put out way more than that. I misspoke. I personally have played 22 of his games. And only one of them would I classify as actively bad. And so let's start with that one. My number 22 on the list, and a genuinely poor game, I think it is objectively bad, Hengist. And I'll be honest, I don't... Someday I would love to hear the story behind Hengist. How did this happen? Um, Because... I, you know, it has nice components. And that's about the only nice thing. I mean, there's just very little good to say about this game. It's 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 not broken, but it's kind of almost a pointless activity, and there's just no fun factor to it whatsoever. And it's weird. The essence that it came out, uh, Jason Levine of the Dice Tower was doing interviews with various designers, and he did get uh, Uve. On, on the mic in front of the camera and asked him, so hey, can you tell us about this new game that you're that you're putting out? So what's new with Hengist? And Uwe said, if you don't mind, I'd really rather not talk about it. So that tells you right there, it's probably a half-finished design that you know he did not want to see published, but the publisher said, hey, we got to put something out this year. We've got this. Okay, what the heck? We'll just slap it. You know, we'll just get it out there because it's terrible. The less said about it, the better. Uh, suffice to say, obviously, I did not do a run-through because... You know, if I don't have something nice to say, I'd rather not say anything at all. And I have nothing good to say about Hengist. Um, and boy, I'm sure glad I didn't talk about it in the top 10 itself. Because I didn't know it at the time. But the day I posted that top 10, it was actually Uwe Rosenberg's birthday, somebody told me after the fact. So, um, you know, 
I, 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 you know, I guess it was my gift to him talking about his 10 games that I uh, love and respect the most. Hengist is not amongst them. But now, going on to the next one, number 21 uh, to number 11. These are all good to great games. Make no mistake. Uh, but they do just get better and better as we go along. So number 21 is Farmerama. One that very few people probably even heard of. It's just kind of a little game he put out a few years ago. It's a tie-in with a very popular digital. I, I think it's a. I think it's a Facebook game, Farmerama. I'm not quite sure. And it's him just kind of, you know, tra- you know, traveling his well-tested highways and byways of farm simulation. And it was a good, solid little game. It wasn't great. I think I rated it a seven. And really, it was just kind of. Well, it kind of suffered the problem that I talked about in his top 10. It didn't really have a lot of variability that would encourage a lot of replay. It was, you know, every time you played, you were going to be faced with kind of the same challenges and decisions over and over again. And so Jen and I just didn't really think it was a keeper. But I thought it was good. And it is certainly an important game because it is where Uwe first introduced and experimented with what would become a mainstay later on, the um, resource wheel, where your central board has a spinning wheel that rotates over the course of the game. This is where he did it first, and he did it differently than he has done it elsewhere. It's different here than in um, Inland Port and uh, or at Labora and Glass Road, etc., etc. And you know, so I think it definitely deserves to be remembered for that, if nothing else. But it was an okay little game. Uh, next up at 20, there is Cottage Garden, which is the was that yeah, that was the first of his trilogy of Tetris tile layers, although it wasn't his first Tetris tile later, but uh, apparently there was a trilogy with this one and number 19, Indian Summer. And then uh, my, my of course my number six was Spring Meadow, the third in the trilogy. Spring Meadow, as far as I'm concerned, is by far the best because it Spring Meadow takes the best of Cottage Garden and the best of Indian Summer and combines them into the best game overall. Uh, Cottage Garden and and Indian Summer are both fine, but it's kind of weird. For us, uh, Cottage Garden was just too lightweight, too featherweight. I could certainly see it working great with families and new gamers, but for us, there was very little meat on the bone uh, and just not enough challenging there to engage our gray matter. Uh, Indian Summer, on the other hand, while I'm not saying it was a hard game, for such a fast, breezy light game, there was, I think, it was a bit overwrought. There was a bit too much going on. And, you know, it, it, so it's kind of like if uh, you know Cottage Garden was too hot and Indian Summer was too cold, well, combining those two games to get Spring Meadow was just right. So anyway, that was number 21 and number 20. Then, or I'm sorry, no, that was number 20 and number 19. Number 18 is Rayholt, which is basically, um, you know, if you, my number 10 was Agricola, All Creatures Big and Small, which was a simplified, streamlined version of Agricola. Well, Rayholt is the same thing. It is a simplified, streamlined version of Gates of Luoyang, which was my number 5. And, ah... Uh, it was fine. There were some definite things I did not like in Rayhold. The event cards, which to be fair, are an optional variant you can add. I thought they were actively pretty poor. And um, the thing is, uh, you know, unlike all creatures big and small, which really did work hard to streamline and simplify and just get down to the bare bones basics of what Agricola was, Rayhold does it kind of, but nowhere near as much. Rayhold is. Oh gosh, I would say you know, eight, seventy-five to eighty percent the depth 
of Gates of Luoyang. So it, it just kind of rearranges elements and combines some elements into new things and just kind of does Luoyang differently. Not better, and but not differently enough. It's a beautiful production. It's really great looking. And if you don't have access to Luoyang, I would certainly say it's worthwhile. But I just couldn't see a reason to own Rakeholt and Gates of Luoyang at the same time. And Gates of Luoyang is the better game. Rakeholt is okay. I, I would even go as far as to say good. We're definitely in the good category now, but it just wasn't a keeper in, in the uh, light of Luoyang. Although I did have some cool stuff. And to be fair, I very much appreciated the uh, uh, Uwe's uh, experimentation with the implementation of narrative story-driven content. I was talking about that earlier in the podcast. That's kind of what Alex Alexander Pfister is known for. And so a little bit of that was worked into basically Gates of Luoyang in the form of Ray Cult. So it was nice. Now I know the game has its fans. It just wasn't quite for us. And next up, there's number 17, uh, Verful Bonanza, or... Bonanza, the dice game, as it might also be known. And this is a nice little dice game. It's practically a roll and write, except you don't do any writing. You keep track of what you've done with a deck of cards instead of writing stuff down on a piece of paper. Actually, kind of maybe missed a trick there. But anyway, what makes this game interesting is on my turn, I'm going to roll a bunch of bean dice trying to harvest the right types of beans like any Bonanza game. But the cool part is everybody else at the table is interested because they also have the potential to harvest beans on my turn based off of my roll. And that does give it a nice little bit of interactivity, a positive, upbeat interactivity that we like quite a bit. I'm not saying this reinvents the wheel or anything, but it's a solid little dice game. Good fun stuff. Nowhere near as good as Bonanza the Duel, which of course came in at number four, but still pretty fun. And that is Verful Bonanza. Then we go on to number 16, uh, Lahav, the Inland Port. And number 15, Lahav. Okay, let's cover these one at a time. Lahav Inland Port is the simplified, streamlined version of Lahav. And it's really good. It is very good. You know, unlike Rayholt trying to capture and encapsulate the spirit of, of Gates of Luoyang in a, in a tight little package. You know, that, again, that's what All Creatures Big and Small does with Agricola. Rayholt didn't do with Yolo Yang. But Lahav Inland Port definitely does Lahav. Uh, you know, it has the feel and the spirit, but it's its own thing. And it's a brilliant little puzzle of a game. I really liked it a lot. I have one significant problem with it, though. Absolutely zero setup variability. That game, for me and Jen, we knew after our second play, it was going to play out the same every single time we played for the rest of our lives. Uh, That game, Inland Port, so desperately needs an expansion. You know, all the expansion love that all creatures big and small got, if Inland Port got that same kind of love, I have no doubt it would have made my top 10. It's that good. But... It, because there's no setup variability, uh, and, it, and it has the potential to play out the same every time, it's really incumbent on the players to force themselves to try different strategies and whatnot. And I know a lot of players do that. I mean, that's great and that's fine. That's not Jen's in my cup of tea, which is why it didn't make the top 10 and it comes in number 16. But okay, I've waited long enough. Let's talk about why is Lahav, which many people consider to be Uwe Rosenberg's greatest game ever. And certainly, I think very few people would not put it in his top 10. I'm a real outlier here. Why did I put it in at 15? I'll tell you why, folks. There is a problem with Lahav that I think most fans of Lahav completely ignore, and maybe in large part because most people don't play it as a two-player game. Lahav has a very, very strange loan system. 
You know, which is not at all uncommon, you know, uh, in, in Euros of, of, you know, like certainly Martin Wallace is the lone taken king where, okay, well, I, I need to, I need to get myself a little bit of cash infusion to be able to do what I want. All right, I'll take a loan and I've just got to pay it off by the end of the game or there will be consequences, you know, uh, lost victory points and whatnot. So Lahab does it like, like many, many other games before it. But here's the funky thing. In most games, the more loans you take, the more pain you will feel, the harder it is to deal with that. Not so in Lahav. The way Lahav works is, if you take a loan, um, once every round, once every year in game terms, you have to pay interest on that loan. And that interest is one coin, one French franc. You have to pay one franc uh, if you take out a loan. You also have to only pay one franc if you take out two loans, or five loans, or ten loans. You only have to pay one franc every year. And so, it is categorically insane for you not to go loan bonkers crazy in this game. I, I mean, yeah, if you do, if 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 your opponent takes lots of loans, because again, there is nothing stopping you from doing it. Uh, that you know, there's no additional overhead. You would expect, you would intuit that. Oh, if I take out one loan, I have to pay one franc in interest. If I take out three loans, I have to pay three francs in interest. If I take out five loans, I have to pay five or something like that. And that's not the case. You can te- you can have. Te- I have played this game and taken out ten or more loans uh, as fast as I could, as fast as the game rules would allow me, um, because I know this is uh, one of the most beautiful things about Lahav is it is a- such a game of explosive growth. By the end of the game, paying off those ten loans is chump change. It is so easy to do. There is no danger if you have played with any level of skill to be able to pay off ten loans by the end of the game. Um, um, you know, rather than face a, you know a few victory points loss. Um, so the only downside to t- not taking a ton of loans is interest. But only one coin every round? That's ridiculous. It makes no sense logically or thematically, and for my taste, it completely invalidates the vast majority of strategic depth that this game would offer. The way you win at Lahav, at least as a two-player game, is get as many loans as you can and go into the high-cost goods and the high-cost construction as fast as you can, and everybody's going to do the same thing, and it's going to play out the same way every time. Now, the reason I believe this is really only a problem with two-player is because at higher player counts, you get less moves over the course of the game. As a two-player game, you get so many a- options, so many actions, uh, so, so many opportunities to do whatever you want. And so you can always pursue the optimal strategy since you effectively have unlimited money. If you try to play with more players, though, it's not... you Since you get fewer moves overall, even if you can take that unlimited money in the for, in the in the form of all these crazy loans, you don't necessarily have the opportunity to pursue the most optimal strategy. And you, you will find yourself, hey, you know what? Sometimes, based on the way this game is shaken out, I really should corner the market on leather and forget about making ships or what have you. Because you just have less time. Um, and I understand that's why the, this funky loan thing exists in the first place. At higher player counts, um, if you were to take multiple loans and had to pay multiple francs off, you would immediately bankrupt yourself because the game doesn't give you enough time to, um, you know, to, to, to scrape up 
three or four or five francs to pay an interest rate of three or four or five. And so, I mean, you're, you're, it, it, it works at higher player counts. As a two-player game, it does not. And I have to admit, for the first few years we had Lahav, I actually really loved it because we were playing wrong. Because we were playing, assuming that, yes, if I have three loans, I have to pay three francs. And that made taking a bunch of loans really scary. Uh, and sometimes a reasonable thing. But, you know, I mean, you, you'll, be, you'll doom yourself if played the incorrect way you take on like five loans because you will not be able to handle that overhead of interest payments. So you really have to be very judicious and very sparing and you take loans when you need them as opposed to why wouldn't you? Um, That suddenly makes Lahav a very good game, probably a top 10 game. But that is a house rule that I have to assume there is something wrong with it because Uwe Rosenberg is a very smart designer. And he, in his infinite wisdom, must have thought it's better that as a two-player game, you have effectively infinite money, which leads to a very narrow, optimal set of plays that means the game is just going to kind of roll out the same way every single time with some slight variation. That's my problem with Lahav. The official rules, as written, it is an okay two-player game. It's, it's brilliant, the, the core systems, but completely undone by this totally wackadoo loan system. And once I found out Jen and I had been playing it wrong for years and we tried to play it the right way, we said, oh, this game is really not anywhere near as good as we thought. And I got rid of it. Um, and I know people will be quick to say, well, just keep playing the way you want to play it. Um, and for anybody who wants to say that, I suggest you go to faq.rado.com and check out, let's see, which one is it? Question number, where is it? Oh, I should have looked it up before I did this, before I started saying. Uh, check out question number 24, faq.rado.com, number 24. That is where I have written up a response to the question, hey, why don't you use this house rule or this variant? There is a reason why I talk about it there. Don't need to repeat myself here, because as I will talk about later in the questions and answers section, we've already recorded that last night, I repeat myself enough as it is. So that's why I wrote the FAQ, and that's what I got to say about Lahav. Sorry, Lahav, folks. Um... Like I said, I'm sure it's phenomenal at higher player counts and doesn't run into this problem. But now, let's move on to number 14. Caverna, the cave farmers. Boom! There's the other missing link. Why was Caverna not my top 10? You know what? I have talked about this at length in the past. I do... I, well, I think Caverna, in a lot of ways, is a marked improvement over Agricola. Agricola is still far the superior game because it is a much richer strategic experience. Uh, Caverna is much more tactical because of the abandonment of the card draft up front that allows you to set a strategy for yourself that you will follow all the way through. Caverna is all about, hey, this time I play, let's just sit down and I'm just going to arbitrarily choose this strategy and we'll see if it works out. And I'll change halfway through if I need to. Caverna, I think, is... it's There's nothing bad. There is, there's nothing bad about Caverna. I can't even say... I'm not even going to say it's an okay game. It is a truly great game, as are all of these games I'm talking about now. Um, you know, because we've gotten into Uwe's truly great level. But it is so inferior by such a country mile to Agricola, it's not even funny. Um, and... Yeah, I suppose there are variants I could try. Actually, I always thought that one person suggested a really good variant. If I hadn't gotten rid of it, I might have given it a go. Except I wouldn't. And for reasons why, again, go see faq.rado.com, number 24. But I thought it was a cool idea. The notion of set up the board with the, um, with the side that has limited 
player tiles, only half the player tiles show up, but don't set out the tiles that were that are written on the board. Instead, set out a collection of random tiles. I do think that's actually a really brilliant idea. And I do kind of regret that um, you know that idea didn't go through thorough thorough testing and vetting by Uve and uh, his team because if it had, maybe I would have kept the game because I think that might solve the problems. But again, I'm not a house rules variant guy, so Caverna the Cave Farmer said bye-bye and sits at number 14 on the list. Followed um, by number 13, Caverna Cave versus Cave, which is fantastic. It is phenomenal. Uh, Caverna Cave versus Cave is once again Uwe taking one of his big box games, this time Caverna, and simplifying and streamlining it down to a well-oiled machine. And um, you know, compare, you know, you've you've got all creatures big and small with Agricola, K versus Cave with Caverna, Inland Port with Lahav, and Ray Colt with Lo Yang. Of those four games, I honestly do think Caverna, K versus Cave is the best of them. It's really, really good. It should be in my top 10. It should maybe even be in my top five. It's that good. My only problem with it is it was way too cutthroat for our taste. Uh, and it's not like this is a game that actually has any kind of direct attacking, but this is a game where, um, you know, you know the 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 margins are so narrow, so razor thin. You are always making moves since it is a two player only game with an eye towards blocking your opponent and preventing them from doing what they need to do while still achieving what you need to achieve. And Jen and I, we really liked it, but we just felt terrible playing it because we knew we're. I'm sorry, I gotta do this to you, honey. I have to ruin your plans. And then her turn. I'm sorry, I have to ruin your plans too. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to ruin your plans anymore. So we don't play cave versus cave. But it is a great, great design at number thirteen. Then we got number twelve, Fields of Arla, another big box uh, Uve game. This one's really interesting, and it it is as big and sprawling as. As Feast of Odin and Agricola and all the other ones, but it's two-player only. And I, I really did like it, but, well, heck, you can go back and watch my run-through. I, I, I described in the final thoughts why it wasn't a keeper for us, but it's really, really good, and I can certainly see why so many people love it. And it's definitely a passion project. I mean, I think it's maybe his most personal game to date uh, because of what he wrote in the uh, the... The, the liner of the rule book you know about about his his life growing up in you know in the in the Arl region and all that but anyway so it's a very very good again worker placement farming simulation game with some cool ideas and it's number 12 and then number 11 just mentioning it if there's one other thing that people kept saying where is it people kept saying where's patchwork where's patchwork it's my number 11 folks it just missed the list Come on! It's great. It's good, it's good, good stuff. And I'm excited to try out the, uh, the, the, the Express and all that. And uh, yeah, that, that was the rest. That was a number 11 to 22. And other ones, you know, Babel, Mamma Mia, all those kind of things. Haven't played them. Don't want to play Babel since it's so cutthroat. Don't particularly want to play Mamma Mia. I mean, you know, Bonanza, three-player minimum. Yeah, just that's it, folks. That was my top 22 because those are the 22 I've played. Uwe Rosenberg Games. Phew. Um, and uh, that's it. Uh, check back next month when I'll be doing a follow-up to my next top 10, which, if I recall correctly, is top 10 game artists. Oh, let the subjectivity begin. But for now, uh, let's hold on for a second. We'll be right back with all of the questions. Okay, everybody. Welcome back to the questions and the answers. As always, joined by Jen. Hi, Honey Pie. Hello, my love. Hello. And also joined by the pups and also joined by 14 small chickens. Well, not exactly. They are outside. We are inside. That's correct. But they are within visual range. Yep. Jen is keeping an eye on them so that 
stray coyotes don't get them or something, <laughs> I, I guess. I was worried more about the neighborhood cats, actually. All right, cats, coyotes, it's all the same. And first, as always, we're going to do some game-related questions. And then for folks who would like to hear about Gems in My Life, we'll do the personal questions. Or perhaps about chickens. Or maybe there'll be some chicken questions. I don't know. We'll find out, but it won't be for a while. In fact, that was far too much personal stuff. I apologize and thank everyone for their patience. Who are just here for the Walk. games. Alrighty. Let's start out with some questions from Andre, who wonders... Do I play Castles of Burgundy with any expansions? If so, which ones? Answer, no! Although a big part of the reason for that is because we don't play Castles of Burgundy, which is a sad state of affairs. We have not played it since... There were some people who visited us in Malta maybe two or three years ago. And when they came out, they wanted to play it and we played it with them. And that was fun. But, you know, um, about the only way Castle Burgundy is going to get played anytime soon is if an expansion does, in fact, come out for it that I need to cover for the show. And that certainly hasn't happened for a while. I've got all of them. Every single one of those, uh, including the solo ones, I think. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. So I'd like to try all of them, but we haven't tried any of them. It's a very, very sad state of affairs. Maybe that'll be something we rectify in the upcoming Rotto Relaxes show. That is going to be a new monthly thing for Patreon backers where we just sit down and play a game and it doesn't matter if it's a game I need to cover or not. In fact, yes, Castles and Burgundy might be in our future for that very reason. Yeah. Andre also wonders, are there any games we wish would have a reprint soon? Well, there's always glory to Rome. Uh, sure. I mean, we have one. I know. I'm just talking to for all those unfortunates out there who don't. Yes. Well, that's a, that's certainly a good one. I'm um, surprised you just pulled that right out of nowhere. I love glory to Rome. I know, but what made you think of it? Well, I just know just... that it's very limited edition, and it's such a great game. Yeah, yeah. I would I would have to agree. That is certainly a worthy one. I'm trying to think. Did I ever do a top ten list on this? Top ten Rado reprint. Feels like I have done this. Uh, yes, in fact, Andre, um, just a couple of years ago, I did a top 10 games that need a reprint. And I'd be willing to bet Glory to Rome was on it. So it is the winner. Okay. And then he also says he just watched the my Pandoria run through and it got him thinking of games that were overlooked. What games from yesteryear or from recent times do we think were criminally overlooked? And he knows I did a top 10 on underrated games, but this is different. Since these are games people just didn't notice at all. I, I have nothing to say Yeah, of course. That. Yeah, I, I, that, that's <laughs> tough. That would be... Um, you know what, Andre? What I'm going to suggest you do is go to... Let me double check this. I think the URL is top10.rado.com. Just top10.rado.com. That will take you to a geek list where I solicit suggestions for top 10 topics. And I think that is a very good suggestion. I am going to forget that you ever said that probably within the next 90 to 120 seconds. <laughs> but when you hear this, if you can remember to go to top10.rado.com and request it there, that will be my reminder to add it to the official list because I think that's a good suggestion. All righty. And uh, that's that. Moving on to Ed wonders, or says, he picked up uh, one of my favorite drafting games, uh, Subdivision, and they really love it, him and his wife. Wanted to ask for any other similar tile drafting, tile placement games you might recommend that you would enjoy with Jen. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Boy. 
<coughs> ah, excuse me. You I'm swallowing. Cough in the other direction. Uh, yes. You, you're people. saying I should not cough directly at the microphone? Yeah. I did cover my mouth, but I don't think the microphone cares. It's, it's not going to get sick. <laughs> not that I'm sick. I'm doing okay. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, what? Um, um, I just did. Feels like I talked about this recently because I just did like a top 10 t- uh, tile drafting games, or I did a top 10 drafting games. Yeah, and a couple of them came up there. The subdivision was one of them, as was Warsaw, City in Ruins, and oh, um, Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Those are a couple of really excellent ones. I mean, but you know what? I mean, I've done a top 10 tile lane games. Just go do a search, or Google search, Google search for Rado Top 10 Tile. Did you You'll, say gurgle? Search? Do a Google search. <laughs> I was uncalled for. Uh, so that information is out there and at the ready for you, Ed. Uh, seek it out. Okay. Next up, Darren has two questions. Okie dokie. <clears throat> when I do a top 10, how do I decide what makes the list, considering I probably haven't played some games for a few years? Try most games. <laughs> Try almost all of them. Uh, to get you to get them out and flick through rules, do I play a few rounds to remember what it's like, or do I watch my old videos, or do I go by memory? Uh, the main thing I do, quite frankly, is go to ranked.rado.com, where I have every single game that we own ranked. So I use this as a tool, I mean, because at some point, usually what happens is, anytime uh, we are finished playing a new game and I've gone ahead and filmed it, the last step of the life cycle of a new game before it goes onto the shelf and gathers dust for eternity is that I rank it relative to all my other games. And that is obviously something I do several times a month. And uh, because of that, that list is constantly being updated. You know, I'll go in and I, and I really have to think, well, okay, this is definitely not as good as this. Okay, because I remember this one. Okay, let's go down, let's go down, let's go down. Ooh, I think it's better than this one. Yeah, and I'll have to stop and I'll think about it. I'll try to remember it. I, I pretty much just go entirely by memory of, how, of what my experiences were playing the games and what my experience, what my recollection of enjoyment factor of the game is. But I'll just keep going back and forth until I find the right slot and I'll slot it in. So that list is pretty up to date. Quite frankly, I don't even need to do top tens because you know I give away all the secrets right there at rank.rado.com. Although I do try to put spins on it when I actually do top tens. But yeah, I would say it's mostly by memory. Maybe I'll go back and watch some of the old videos if I if I if I you know like really old ones, but that doesn't happen too terribly often. I have a pretty good memory for the experiences or you know the the entertainment factor for for what kind of uh, feelings it engendered. So yeah, he also watched the run through of Paladins of the West Kingdom and is wondering how solo play works. Uh, is there an opponent uh, like Architects has? Uh, honestly, I'm sorry, Darren. I have no idea. I didn't take the time to actually... I, I, there was a solo game for Paladins, and I looked at it, and if I recall correctly, it was long. There, it was like three or four pages of the rule book. Like almost 20% of the rule book was devoted to the solo game, and I'm like, okay, that is too much to read right now because I'm in a hurry. I got to go. I got other games to play. So it's there, and I would say it's... Whatever it is, it's very robust, but I don't know much about it. He also wonders... Let's see, I mentioned in the last podcast that I used to read Marvel and Spider-Man, but quit when they did a reboot like DC does every few years. Um, and then I, I said it was the one more year story. I assume you mean the one more day and Secret Wars that put you off. Uh, those were eight years apart. Is that true? 
is one more day. It was eight years. Yeah. Well, okay. No, no. Yeah, one more day didn't put me off. Uh, one more day, and its subsequent, uh, you know, encapsulated Spider-Man reboot was a major, major turnoff. And um, I think I did take a break from Spider-Man for a while. And what ultimately brought me back was, um, oh, well, you know, when um, Doc Ock became Spider-Man because that was really awesome. I really enjoyed that. And so then, uh, but then the Secret Wars three is the one that just made me close the door on Marvel forever. And I have not gone back to look. So you're right. You caught me if I, if I said, if I conflated the two, they both had the same issue that I, you know, of just retconning and forgetting history, which I've always thought is one of Marvel's greatest strengths. Um, oh dear, this is kind of personal stuff. This has nothing to do with board games. Oh dear. Okay. We're gonna have to come back to your other um, comic book related questions, which you seem to have quite a bit. So we'll come back to you in a minute, Darren. Uh, you said two game related questions. I was not paying attention. All right. Sorry about that, folks. Let's move on to Griffin, who wonders what designer uh, who I have just discovered am I most excited about looking forward to in the future? This could be a new designer or simply a designer. You've only played a few of their games. Hmm. Well, certainly the most exciting designer of the last few years is Alexander Pfister. That's, that's a given. I, uh, everything. Uh, he's got going on, including the uh, new one I just talked about in the New Games of Interest earlier in this very podcast, which I have yet to record, but I will be talking about it. So, I mean, yeah, he's the easy answer, but I, I think that'd be answer from a lot of people. Uh, Dave Turchi, I really enjoy everything he does and want to pay attention to it. Let's see. Somebody I've just recently discovered. How would I do that? I need to go back to Board Game Geek, and I need to look at a... I need, I think, I need, what I need to do is look at the list of games that I've filmed over the last year or something like that. So let's go to my Rado Runs Through Geek list and go to the last page. And uh, if I can't find something more than Alexander, I'm going to go with Alexander Pfister. But, dee 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 a pirate's life for me. We pillage, we plunder, we rifle and loot, drink up me hearty yo-ho. All right, nothing's jumping out at me. I think I'm just going to stick with Alexander, quite frankly. I mean, oh, that's not fair. I mean, there are so many. Uh, you know, David Chirkoff, although I guess he's been around a little bit longer now. But I mean, he's been around as long as Alexander Pfister, hasn't he? That's a tough one, quite frankly. But uh, so I'm just going to cop out and say Alexander Pfister. Uh, and because it's generally true, I think of, of, a, of a designer who's come onto the scene in the last five years, I am more enthused about any game of his that I hear about than anybody else because of his, in my experience, very unique blend of strong Euro economic simulation sensibilities and narrative drive. Uh, you know, the fact that he's always trying to work story into his Euros is wonderful, and it's something that I hope more people start copying him, quite frankly, because it's fantastic. So yeah, Mr. Fister. And let's see, recently, Griffin has been revisiting games, playing games again uh, that he wasn't quite fond of in the past, like Burgundy. <gasps> gasp! He, he actually wrote the gasp, because he knew I would gasp. But, turns out, he loves Castles of Burgundy now, it must have been a bad experience for him the first time because after revisiting it, he really enjoyed it. So the question is, have I ever revisited a game and found I like it significantly more or less than the first time? Huh. You know, I, I, I never say never. We've played a lot of games over the years. We, we must have played at least 1,500 games over the last decade. Um, probably something like that. I think, what have I filmed? Like 1,300. So, yeah, never say never, but... I don't think so. I, that's just not something that has much of an opportunity to happen, quite frankly. One, 
we are less likely. I mean, I don't know what your bad experience with Burgundy was, but certainly one source of bad experience is playing with folks that you just don't mesh with. And that can cast a pall over the game. And of course, that's not a problem because I think Jen and I have it down now. <laughs> I think we mesh pretty okay. 28 years of meshing. At this point, yes. So, you know, that's something that we can largely throw out. And, you know, there have certainly been times that we've sat down and played a game and something has gone wrong, and Jen's ready to discount it completely out of hand. But I know that, no, this is not the game's fault. This is the situation because she's under a lot of stress because, I don't know, maybe we're doing an international move or something like that. <laughs> we do that um, every so often. <laughs> every once in a while, it seems. Um, and so, I mean, but I, the thing is, I can identify, I, or I should say, I can separate the extemporaneous surrounding meta elements that might have an effect on the game that is not really the game's fault. And I can filter that stuff out. Like if I'm having a miserable time because Jen is literally burying me, just destroying me utterly, and I feel like the stupidest man on the planet. After the game is over, and Jen will say... We figure out how I've cheated. <laughs> and we find out afterwards that Jen... Che- Jen cheats quite a bit. Or, you know, on purpose, by, by accident. Um... Got to keep an eye on her. Uh, but, you know, and we get to the end of it, and Jen's like, she's afraid to ask, oh, how did you like this? Oh, I, thought, I liked it a lot. I thought that was really good. And she's like, oh, I don't know if I liked it. And I know she says she doesn't like it because she just felt that she was unable to enjoy it because she thought I wasn't enjoying it. When, in fact, I was enjoying it just fine, even though I was incredibly demoralized every step of the way. Uh, and again, that's I, I think that's just a reflection of the fact that I was a game designer for so long. And so I do tend to, I mean, in spite, it, it, you know, it, it, Immaterial. I mean, Rotto Runs Through is a good job for me because my mindset for approaching games fits a, uh, a situation I'm in where I have to analyze and, and give a lot of thought to it. But I do it regardless, just because of 20 years of, of game making. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think that would happen to me too terribly often. And while it maybe would happen to Jen, we don't really get the chance to go back. Because we just don't go back. It just does not happen to us. So, there was Griffin's questions. Moving on to Kareem. Uh, the board game minimalist, who says he's been a long-time viewer and is curious why I seem to engage... All right. All right. I'm curious, why do I seem to engage with people on YouTube and Board Game Geek, but not so much on Twitter? Twitter. Twinker. Twinker. Twinter. He has an account himself, at at Game Minimalist, or at Game Minimalist. There's no .com. It's a Twitter handle. And he's found a great place to chat with all kinds of members of the hobby. Newbie board gamers, seasoned designers... And we'd love to see more of me there. Here's the thing, um, Kareem. I engage with anybody who asks me a question. The reason you see me posting a lot on YouTube is because a lot of people ask questions there. And those are pretty much the only things I answer. Uh, a, a smaller portion, but still a not insignificant portion of people ask me questions on Board Game Geek, And I answer those questions. Nobody asks me anything. I check Twitter probably at least a couple times a day. And I click on the, the mentions so that if in case anybody does an at Rotto, I see it. And um, you know, and I appreciate it every time somebody does, oh, I really love Rotto's show, or you should check out at Rotto's video for this or whatever. That's great. Very rarely do I ever see, hey, at Rotto, what do you think about X, Y, or Z? If somebody did that, you will find I answer them. And it's, I don't know what it is. It's just the, the nature of the Twitterverse. That I guess it's a more declarative statement type platform <laughs> and less of an open question platform. And so, hey, uh, uh, you know, prove me wrong. Ask me a question with that Rotto. I bet you 
I, I will answer you. And um, let's see. Even if I have to stick to what's not 140, is it 280 characters now? Whatever it is, I have nothing against it. It's just that I do spend a lot of time online and it's answering questions on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, on BoardGameGeek. I used to do it on Reddit as well, but I have stopped doing that. And uh, yeah, so I, I only got time to answer questions, uh, not just to engage in general chit chat. Okie dokie. Then we've got Nigel. Who, all right, says, in light of the recent Kickstarter reprint of Age of Steam, Martin Wallace took to Board Game Geek to advise those not in the know of his ongoing dispute with the publisher. Um, Do I feel, on the whole, there is adequate protection for content creators' intellectual property in the board game industry? I'm not the guy to ask. I, 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 I can't say one thing. Uh, it would appear... I mean, when did you write this? You wrote this back on the 7th, so almost a month ago. In between you writing this uh, and now, Nigel, I don't know if you noticed, but apparently Martin Wallace has worked it out, and they've said, hey, we, we've found a way to move forward, so that's fantastic. I, but I couldn't tell you. I no, I don't see what contracts anybody signs. Nobody has seen the con- as far as I know the contract that Martin Wallace signed uh, and what rights there were available. You would have to ask somebody, you know, uh, in the know who's actually out there making games or publishing games because I am not the dude. Um, right. And we've seen recent titles, Copycat, Lagranha, where designers have had their work borrowed. Presumably with consent, I wouldn't necessarily say so, and repurposed. But Martin still claims that this work has been flat out stolen from him. Is this a widespread issue, or is it relatively minor when compared to other published media? I certainly haven't seen it come up very much. Maybe it happens a lot, and Martin Wallace is the only person who actually speaks up about it. Honestly, I don't know that it necessarily does him any good to do it, because uh, he gets just as many people turning against him as supporting him. And, uh, you know... My experience in the board game industry is you don't, or I'm sorry, the video game industry is you do not air your dirty laundry in public. Man, the stories I could tell you about the publishers we worked for that literally tried to crush us and destroy us so they could buy us for cheap. I'm talking about you, Bethesda. I don't even get me started, but when I worked there, I wasn't allowed to talk about it because you just don't do such things. And I don't think anybody does. I'm sure Martin is not the only one who feels ill-treated by publishers, but I guess... Since I have no direct knowledge, I'm going to go with kind of my standard default answer for such things, which is to say, humanity on the whole is good. People, as a general rule, more often than not, are good. And while there may be disagreements and misunderstandings, it's not that people are out trying to rob and steal and and um, pillage and rifle and and uh, loot each other. So it probably doesn't happen that often, uh, particularly because the board game industry is so small and it's so much about personal one-on-one, face-to-face uh, connections between the uh, producers and the designers. So I would be willing to bet it probably isn't too terribly common, but I, I don't know. That would be a question to go on to, I don't know, the Board Game Insider podcast, uh, where you have actual publishers and who could maybe answer that question. Um, Nat- Natalie says, have uh, we experienced playing a game with an expansion and not liking the change? Maybe you decide to play without the expansion next time. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oftentimes expansions just add complexity and too muchedness, which is great if you are a weekly player of the game and you need some extra muchedness. But since we don't get to do that very much, it's just oftentimes too much. Yeah. 
Like uh, we used to, back when we were playing Agricola every week, you know, before, long before I ever started doing this, you know, we played Agricola a lot and then we got uh, uh, Farmers of the Moor. And at the time I would have told you, oh, I will never play Agricola without Farmers of the Moor again. But I guarantee, if we were to sit down and play Agricola right now, we would play without Farmers of the Moor. Just to keep it a little bit more simple, keep it a little bit more streamlined. Um, and, you know, in part, that's a reflection of our situation. Like Jen said, the more you want to play a game, the more you want to jump in to the deep end of the pool. And we just don't get that opportunity that often. But, I mean, there have certainly been other ones. Um, oh, uh, Dungeon Pets. Do you remember Dungeon Pets expansion, honey? It's, it's, I mean, it came with a bunch of new pets, which was awesome, obviously, yeah. and, and, and new pens and uh, artifacts and stuff like that. But it had that whole other sideboard, the dark alley, where there were like all these different worker placement spots you could do that just added like a ton of extra stuff. And that would be an example of something that we, we liked it, but I think it went a bit too far. Uh, it's, it's, and it would be something, again, that if we were playing Dungeon Pets a lot, we'd probably want to bring it out. But otherwise, I mean, for us, the Dungeon Pets expansion is really just about getting more pets into the game. Okay, Jarek or uh, uh, Jasek, Jackek, one of those pronunciations will do. Alrighty, Jasek. Jasek. Jasek did not send me a question. He sent me a rule book to read about um, Enchantress Overlords, which oh no, he sent this on the ninth, and I put it in the Q and A directory instead of the rules to read directory. Let's just put it over here in the rules to read directory. Nobody tell Jasek that I've been sitting on his rules for over a month and I totally forgot about them. Oh, I'm terrible. Alrighty, I'm surprised that doesn't happen more often. Let's move on from that bit to Stacy, uh, who again asks about the Age of Steam controversy. And uh, how this isn't the first time it's come up. And uh, let's see. For herself, she's already invested heavily in the original. Was thinking of maybe just getting uh, you know, the, the reprint that Martin Wallace was complaining about. Stacy, they worked it out. It's okay. As, as far as I understand, you can get the new update without um, feeling bad about it. So, but if your question is, you know, what, what were our thoughts of it? Honey pie. There's a... I don't, I, honestly, I don't remember the particulars of it. Uh, designer, very prolific designer. He's done a lot of games we love. London. You love London. I love London. And uh, not just the game, but the city itself. Mm. He did a very popular game many, many years ago for one publisher. And I'm not, I don't remember what happened. That publisher got bought by another publisher or relinquished rights. At some point along the way, he doesn't feel he lost rights to his original design, but another publisher who has it now says, yeah, this is our right. We can do whatever we want with it. Mm. And they're republic. They're doing a second edition. And, um, and apparently uh, Martin Wallace, the original designer, does not get any royalties off it. I'm not sure. I have to admit, I really didn't look into this that closely because, quite frankly, the whole thing smacked of, please don't air your dirty laundry in public. I just don't think this should be done. Uh, and again, like I said earlier, it's just kind of counter to my programming from the video game industry. Please just work this out amongst yourselves. Uh, and I, I appreciate, I'm sure he's tried and he feels there's nothing else he can do. And his last resort is the court of public opinion where he's actively, well, uh, you know, seeking vengeance on this publisher and trying to take them down and trying to tell everybody that these publishers are a crook and you shouldn't buy from them, which is to say, I am trying to literally make them go out of business right now because they are not paying royalties for my game. That's the thing. There's, there are no good guys and no bad guys in this. There's no way we can know unless we all get to read the contracts and we were there for every step of the way. I guarantee you the publisher has their 
perspective, their point of view, they don't think they're evil. They don't think they've done any wrong. Martin Wallace doesn't think he's evil. He isn't doing any wrong. The reality is probably nobody has. And there's a series of misunderstandings, a series of missteps, and they're all good people just trying to do their best to work it out. And apparently, again, happy days they have. So hopefully, Stacey, you were able to back without any guilt. I don't know. Did you have anything to say about such things, honey pie? You certainly don't run into them in your day-to-day. No, I don't. Yep. Yeah, this was a hot um, button topic uh, back 20 days ago, but it's since been resolved. <laughs> so that's that's the problem with only uh, doing Q&A once a month. Ah, uh, you know, the old news. All righty. Uh, Daniel says, some podcasts ago, I mentioned... The name Escape Room Games might not be fitting for the genre anymore since uh, they often don't really take place or feature a specific room. And, uh, right. But, you know, just borrow from, you know, the, the puzzle structure and whatnot. There are even more coming out these days from choose your own adventure type of games to explore the this mind of a comatose person type of game. What about calling Escape Room Games story games from this point on? I don't think so. I don't think story... I mean... I don't think you could call Unlock or Escape or Dexcape a story game and adequately explain or you know encapsulate what that experience is in the same way I could say a science fiction movie and everybody would have a probably not entirely out of the ballpark expectation of what they're going to get. If I say story game, I tell you what that's going to mean to me. That's going to mean a um, Tales of Arabian Nights. That's going to mean a game that has something, but for the most part, we're just reading lots of story snippets out of a book. So honestly, I don't think that one's going to work there, buddy. Daniel, you got to go back to the drawing, uh, the drawing board on that. Okay. And then he has a personal question, which we'll come back to later. Unless you... Can you think of a proper term, honey pie? that uh, we can use for escape room games, seeing as how they don't literally take place in rooms anymore. They take place in entire trains or entire haunted islands or what have you. But you still do basically the same thing. You go, you go from a series of locations. So it's an escape location game. But that's not particularly sexy. <laughs> no. I'm, I don't have any. You got nothing. Got she nothing. She's going back to the chickens, folks. All righty. <clears throat> Alexander wonders, what excites us the most about an expansion for the game? More of the same stuff, cards, powers, etc. New wrinkles to gameplay, new player counts, etc. Well, certainly not new player counts. I don't care if you go from 5 to 6 or from 4 to 10. We're still only going to play it as a two-player game. I mean, I guess if you go from 3 to 2, we're suddenly interested, because otherwise we couldn't care less about it. But that's a given. Hanny Pie, you just started talking about this a little bit ago. What do you like to see in an expansion? Um, whatever my favorite thing about that game is. Uh-huh. I don't know. I mean, each game is different, so I, I don't know how to say what that is. Yes. But does that mean you just want more of the same? You just want more cards? You uh, uh, case well, like Dominion. Okay, let's talk about... Well, yes. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, for obviously, Dominion just does more cards in their expansions, but they introduce new things. They have sideboards. They have new forms of currency. They do all kinds of funky stuff. Yeah. But um, Agricola... Would you rather an expansion that just says, hey, look, here's a bunch of new cards, just a bunch of new uh, minor improvements and occupations, mix them up, try some new strategies, but the game doesn't change at all? Or would you rather one that adds another mini board on the side with six new worker placement spots that give you new actions you can do that change things up? Like you know, Agricola Farmers of the Moor, yeah. where, you know, hey, let's have horses and let's do peat moss and, and all this extra stuff. 
What would you rather have? What would you rather expand Agricola with? Mm, I think my answer would be different if we were not if we were not Rado. Mm-hmm. So I would say, because of the way our lives are right now, it's easier for me to just pick up the new cards idea mm-hmm. and and the new just just work with it the way I already know how to work with it. Okay. I think if we were doing Rado stuff and we had more time to game, I would go for the other. Yeah. Well, I mean, we. Uh... And that's a slight mislead. We obviously have plenty of time to game. We spend probably more hours gaming than most people, but we don't get to revisit games. So you so you think if Rotto had never started and I was still working a nine to five, and well, no such thing in the video game industry, and we just played games on the weekends, um, and we probably owned a hundred games or you know, or, or whatever. Yeah, I'm sure we'd own a couple hundred by now. And you would rather get an expansion that was deep added, you know, kind of like flip the script and really change things up and made you look at this, approach this game in a whole new way. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All I right. think I'd be more open to wild expansions. Right. So that is your natural predilection. Okay. Fair enough. Eh, I don't really have a preference. I, I could go either way. Although, I mean, what Jen speaks is the truth. The reality is um, on the off chance that we do get to go back and do something. I mean, if we went back and were to play some Shadowrun Crossfire this afternoon. I'd probably still just play Crossfire. I mean, even though I've got the expansion with like those vehicular m- missions and stuff like that, I'd probably still just play the regular game because we just don't get to play the regular game enough to warrant you know, completely yeah, upending not, the whole thing. We're not bored with anything at this point. Yeah, it's just impossible for us, yeah, quite frankly. So we're, we're happy to just keep playing the original game as it was. Yep. Okie doke. Righty. Brian says that uh, on the last podcast, I mentioned how I thought all games will eventually become 3D printer files that we can download. Uh, But then I also mentioned that all publishers should use Kickstarter to sell their games. This seems counterintuitive. Okay. Uh, You expect us to move towards an instant gratification model, but recommend the use of delayed gratification model until then. (laughs) What? I I think that you've nailed it, Brian. Yes, that is exactly the case. Although he does clarify, do you expect publishers to use the number of pledges as a demand gauge sample size when deciding print run size, or do you expect them to only sell on Kickstarter and then that's it until there's demand for a second print run? All right, which actually, that's, I don't know if that clarifies. That just uh, adds a whole other wrinkle. Let's just go to your initial observation. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. When I say eventually all board games will be instant gratification, I'm talking like 50 years from now. When 3D printers are as ubiquitous as regular inkjet printers are today. I mean, you know, and inkjet printers aren't that uh, ubiquitous when it boils right down to it. But there are enough of them out there that, uh, you know, manufacturers can assume, you know, Amazon can assume that most people can print out their own return labels. You know, it's, it's kind of an assumption that most people make because it's not unreasonable for people to have access to an inkjet printer or a laser printer in their homes. At some point within the next 50 years, that will be true for 3D printers as well. And it will radically change the entirety of commerce, um, you know, in, in pretty much all sectors. That's going to happen. But it's going to take a long time to get there. Because right now, 3D printers are flaky and they're only for hardcore enthusiasts. And the, the items you end up making are nowhere near as high quality as what you could get. Right now, 3D printers are at the... Uh, the, the are they're, they're barely to the stage of dot matrix printers were in the 90s. Remember dot matrix printers? We had one. No, we didn't. Becky had one. 
Remember we had to use Becky's yeah. when I yes. when I did the yes. thing that Jen doesn't allow me to talk about in public yeah. because even though the statute of limitations on my um, crime has passed, she will never let me discuss it. But it has to do with dot matrix printers, everybody. Um, and I mean, you remember, not everybody had a dot matrix printer. That was kind of an uncommon thing. And, um, and even if you did have a dot matrix printer, it was in no way, shape, or form a replacement for going down to a Kinko's and getting it done professionally. Um, you know, it's going to take a while for 3D printers to produce stuff as nice as what I can buy in the latest you know, board game box. When we get there, that's when the universe changes. And we effectively have replicators in our houses for all intents and purposes. But in the meantime, since that's decades away, yes, publishers, use Kickstarter. Don't be dumb. Of course use Kickstarter. It is definitely worth the whatever it is, 9 to 11% of your total sales you make off that, both from a point of view of just marketing, because you generate more enthusiasm and excitement for your game. You get more buy-in from consumers because they feel like they're part of the process. I mean, there's so many upsides to it. Uh, but more than anything else, you have, as you say, Brian, a, a moderately accurate gauge. You know exactly how many copies to print. Or, you know, give or take, you know, some slot factor because some things will go wrong and things will get lost or what have you. Why would any publisher not do that? Why take any gamble at all in an industry where profits are so razor thin? Um, yeah, it's just kind of a no-brainer. So, yeah, I don't really see that being inconsistent at all. It's just baby steps. So, moving right along to Grady's big fat question... That's a lot of text from Grady. Oh, but he bolded it so it's easy to find. <laughs> do the... I, I was going to do a Muppet song there, and I, that, totally, that totally went off the rails very quickly. Do morals or ethics of a publishing company or board designer affect your decision on whether or not you would purchase a game? And if so, where would you draw the line? I, yep. Um, and Grady was asking about Martian Wallace. Martin, Martin Wallace. Nope, it clearly says Martian Wallace. Does it? So, finally, somebody talks about the other big controversy about Martian Wallace. <laughs> Thank you, Grady. I mean, enough with the Martin Wallace stuff. Um, right. Hey, Honey Pie, that's a more general purpose question. Not just in board games, but in any creative endeavor. Where do the morals or ethics of those who create the product fall in your decision to consume the product? I suppose the more likable the person, the more you want to consume their product. Mm -hmm. I think that's human nature. Sure. So I guess that's another good reason for not airing your dirty laundry in public. Uh, because indeed. it makes you less likable. Mm -hmm. um, well, here, actually, Grady follows on. Honey Pie. Yes. What if you discovered that one of your favorite games, pick one. Agricola. What if you discovered that Agricola was created by a person? So what if you discovered that Uwe Rosenberg was a racist, sexist, or racist or sexist person, or uh, committed some kind of illegal violent act, or was an avid Trump supporter? Would you stop playing Agricola if you discovered that out about Uwe Rosenberg? By the way, Uwe, happy birthday. Uh, of course, <laughs> we uh, don't expect that's the case, but... If Uwe Rosenberg is a racist or a sexist or a misogynist or a Trump supporter, um, sorry, Trump fans who are listening to this, uh, this was Grady conflating all these things together. Um, honey Pie, would you want to continue playing Agricola? Well, I think there are certainly, you've, you've listed quite a range of activities in there. All right. So I, I guess. 
Well, that, uh, that's what Grady was asking. What's the line? Is there a line? Would some of those be okay and others wouldn't? Of course, some of those would be okay. All right. If he's a Trump supporter, it's fine. You got no problem. Okay, that's cool. All righty. I think if he made me have to play as a Trump supporter, <laughs> I wouldn't want to play that. You wouldn't play his latest Trump propaganda game, you're saying? I think that... Right, I would, okay. I would leave that you would, you. you would not play fake news, um, <laughs> you know, the game from Uwe Rosenberg. All right, so fair enough. But, you know, that's kind of the easy one. That's kind of the gimme. Um, racist, sexist... Yeah, that's hard because does it come through in the gameplay? Mm-hmm. Let's assume. Well, let's assume it doesn't. Let's assume does. nothing changes about Agricola. So you wouldn't know that unless his uh, nanny house cleaner somebody came out. Yeah, but yeah, but the question here is, you found out on you know, all the board game tabloids yeah. on the National Enquirer across the country. Can Uwe you, Rosenberg. Can you believe any of that stuff? I don't know. Is it hearsay? If there's a picture of him wearing blackface, again. Probably not happening. Yeah. Uh, sorry for the example, Uve. Again, happy birthday, buddy. <laughs> um, I don't know. I would have to be pretty assured that it wasn't fake news, that it wasn't somebody just out to mm-hmm. make a problem for him mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. If, if it did so happen, and I didn't feel like it was coming through the gameplay, and or there was something about the game that I thought was very positive, I don't think I would let it affect me. Okay. Excellent. I would agree. And I'll give the the easy example. John Lennon is a self-described uh, spousal abuser. I, he literally put in a song. I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. I mean, that's a Beatles song. Yeah. Um, An old know, one. He, yeah. he learned better. Uh, well, it was, it was one of the later ones, unfortunately. Man, I was mean, but I'm changing my scene. I'm doing the best that I can. Um, but putting that second aside... I, I, you maybe not have heard that song, or you know, it's the you know, getting yeah, better all no, the time. I know, I've heard it. Right. So, knowing that, are you going to stop listening to Beatles songs? Are you going to boycott the Beatles? Or and Grady, I put the same question to you, um, John. I mean, I, I, I can answer myself. No, I separate the artist from the art when it boils right down to it. Um, and yes, if uh, Uwe Rosenberg was a terrible, terrible person who had committed illegal, violent acts. If he goes to jail for you know murdering meeples, I, I you know I I, I, I that would not lessen my enjoyment of the game. I mean you know with with the with the Me Too movement, I still really enjoy um, American Beauty or House of Cards. You know, in spite of the fact that Kevin Spacey is apparently not as cool a dude as I used to think that he was, and that's a real shame. But it doesn't change the fact that. Oh my God! I, I'm, I'm never. It's not like I'm gonna stop having uh, Glenn Gary Gun Ross be one of my favorite movies of all time, because it still is. Separate the artist from the art, as far as I'm concerned. You have to. Um, you know, nobody's perfect. Well, and at least John Lennon said he was. He acknowledged, and he's uh, getting better. Indeed, yes. So that's one one plus for John. And certainly, that's something that uh, you know uh, somebody can uh, use to uh, help make me as a consumer of their art a bit more comfortable about it. Um, you know, if they do show contrition and they do take steps and all that, but that's great. But even if they don't, even if they just disappear in the, uh, under the withering stare of public disapproval, doesn't change the fact that I still love that game or that movie or that show or, or whatever it might be or that song. That's a little bit hard. I think if you found out afterwards that something, okay, like the Kevin Spacey thing. Okay. Um, because we have gone and seen Kevin Spacey live in London. Yes, we we've was, seen a few plays that he yeah. was in when um, he because he was the director of the Old Vic and yeah. yeah, yeah, and he has. We have been spat upon 
by uh, <laughs> Kevin Spacey because we were in the front row and he, he was a bit of a, uh, he was, a liquidy talker. Uh, it, it, it was a very emotional scene, yes. yes. He was really emoting <laughs> with spittle. <laughs> so do I feel less positive about him if I, I feel that he's been an abuser of people? Mm-hmm. I would say, yes, I would feel less positive about him. Right, as do a person. Do I regret going and seeing him? I don't know. I think we all make the best decisions we can at the time. Mm-hmm. And would I feel... Yeah, okay, say about American Beauty. Would I like the film less, knowing that this about him? I don't think I would like the film less. I think I would feel less inclined to support him in the future. Mm-hmm. If there was no contrition. Right. Okay. Or growth. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, because that's the trickier thing. I mean, Grady asks, um, would we continue to enjoy a game we already enjoy and love? Uh, the bigger question is... Do we continue to support him? Um, and yeah, you know, I, I, I think that there would be a line that I would draw where I would say, "No, I'm not going to give that person my money." Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Yeah. No more games from Uve. Still play Agricola in a Loyang, but nothing more. Kind of a thing. Well, we've already, when it when it comes out. Yeah, we've made the investment, and that had nothing to do with whatever we found out at the time. Yeah. Later. It's um, weird. It is a psychological trick because I have to admit, I have kind of the same gut response as you. And that does not hold up to any kind of logical examination at all. Um, you know, I, like I said, I will happily watch uh, Glenn, uh, Gary Glenn Ross again, um, you know, even though he's a major character in it. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I would feel a little bit queasy if he were in a, a new Mamet movie. I mean, as a, and I'd be, oh my God, that's good. I love David Mamet. And, um, and I'm sure he'll be amazing in it. I mean, what was the last thing I saw him in? Was it Baby Driver? Which he was fantastic in. He's always fantastic in everything he does. And I know he'll be fantastic in whatever. And I will really enjoy it. So should I deny myself that enjoyment or that, um, you know, enlighten, or, you know, enlighten okay, too much? Okay, let's say, because that, ha- that movie would have a whole bunch of other people that you'd be supporting as well. Yeah. So it's not just Kevin Spacey. Okay. But let's say Kevin Spacey is down on his, you know, to his last million. Mm-hmm. And he puts on some sort of a gala event to buff up his finances again. Mm-hmm. It's not to say I'm sorry. It's not to discuss the issues. It's just, you know, I'm going to do a, a night of stand-up stuff. I'm going to talk about, I don't know what. But would you pay $100 a ticket to go and do that and support him, help him rebuild his coffers? It's not apologetic. He says right up front, this is not going to, the non-apologetic evening with Kevin Spacey. Yeah, you're saying, he, you're saying he puts up a GoFundMe page, basically. Whatever, yeah. yeah. I don't think I would, I would support that. No, yeah, I don't have to support him to support his art. Um, you know, Harvey Weinstein, uh, you know, to use Hollywood examples again, was apparently a monster. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, he is personally responsible as the head of Miramax for decades worth of amazing films that never would have seen the light of day if he hadn't given them the green light. Um, because, you know, he, you know, regardless of what his personal day to day, uh, you know, interactions were with women, he certainly did appreciate good film. Should I stop watching? Should I never watch Goodwill Hunting again? I don't think so. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, my inclination is to say, I mean, and uh, that's, a, that's a good answer. Oh, it kind of feels like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, yeah, I'm not going to support Kevin. I'm going to support the cinematographer or, you know, or what have you. Yeah. It is tricky. I, I think, basically, to answer the question of where is my line, I, my line is pretty far down the road. 
I, because, I, you know, again, above all else, I'm just a strong proponent of separate the art from the artist. Evaluate the art on its own, um, you know, based on its own merits. Uh, you know, the author is dead. All right. So, okay. And then we're moving on. We'll see if that's the last of Martian Wallace questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a really big deal a few weeks ago, as you, as you can clearly yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. Game-related question. What is the difference between a game designer and a game developer? Seen uh, the terms kicked around a few times. Um, I see. I, I get a mechanism. I, I, I say, I, I've been kicking around a few different game ideas in my head. I usually get a game mechanism and the start of a theme going and then hit a roadblock. Perhaps I need a little help. Would I need a game developer to help me complete them? No. A game developer, which has different terms. I think, uh, I think in German they're called editors in Germany. They're actually called game editors. Or I could be wrong about that. Um, and in America they're generally called developers. But basically, this is a person who works with the designer to help them out in any number of ways. There's no uh, hard and fast rule because the board game industry is fairly young and we don't have terms like cinematographer yet where everybody clearly understands. But for the most part, if you uh, continued pushing that game design idea, Chris, and ultimately got it together to where you have a game and you feel it's good and you want to see if you can get it published, if you then took it to a publisher and showed it to them and said, you know what? There's a diamond in the rough here. We think Chris is on to something. They would take your game and have you start working with one of their developers. And their developer, that, that developer is not, I mean, that developer could be a, a full-time game designer on his own, but as a developer, what he's going to do is work with you to um, predominantly, you know, shave off the rough edges, try to make the game comport to whatever guidelines the publisher wants to see. The publisher loves the game, but you know what? We never publish a game that lasts more than 45 minutes, and this is a two-hour game. Let's have you work with our developer because he'll have you uh, find a way that you can you know, cut the, the length of the game in half, stuff like that. Developers, I tend to think of them as... Uh, you know, actually, no. They're not called editors in German. Or maybe... Oh, I forget now. Oh, they, they're, but anyway, a game developer is kind of like in the uh, published industry an editor. Somebody, you know, you have the author, and that author works very closely with the editor. You've seen this relationship in lots of different movies about the art of writing. How the editor's the one on the phone saying, yeah, you need to hit your deadline. They kind of work like producers, but they also give feedback. They also organize things. And and that's what a developer is, uh, predominantly. Although you might have different publishers call it a different thing. Uh, So, no, a game designer is the artist who creates the game. And the developer is more of a, of a craftsperson, although there, don't get me wrong, there's definitely an art to it who helps hone and shape the game and make it the best it can be based on whatever the parameters need to be. So hopefully that answers that question. And then we move on to Steven, who says he's been playing Agricola for years. And he has Caverna and many other games as well. Recently, his wife lamented that she wants to play a game with abundant resources and without the feeding stress of Agricola or other, or the open sandboxiness of Caverna. Because that's... Uh, all right. Uh, do you or Jen have recommendations of games where you are flush with cash and resources? As a side note, engine building is your favorite mechanism. Uh, Steven, I am not going to answer your question. Other than to say... Please go to faq.rado.com and you will notice entry number five uh, answers your question. Basically, the answer to your question is uh, that would take me all, uh, that would take me not hours, but not minutes. 
That'd probably take me 15, 20, 30 minutes, Stephen, for me to really think about it and get out lists of games I really like and evaluate and compare and contrast and try to come up with a perfect game list for you and your wife. And I'm sorry, Stephen, I just don't have the time to do it. I've got podcasts to record. And so... I suggest going number five because you will find a link there that will take you to a forum that is full to the brim of people who are stand ready to get, to recommend for you the perfect game for whatever your parameters are. They can do a much better job than I ever would because I got no time. Time is the fire in which we burn, Stephen. So that's my answer. FAQ.Rado.com. Question number five. Moving on uh, to Dimitri, who says... His top three games at the moment are Android Netrunner, Azul, and Seven Wonders Duel. He and his wife uh, played base Seven Wonders 50 times with expansions, 30 times. And he always goes for military and science, mostly science. We sell all points cards in the first two ages. We never run out of money, especially uh, if we have some yellow cards. Uh, We sell cards because 80% of the games, it comes down to science and military, especially with the expansions. By the third age, you typically see... If a game will be uh, won or not, because you can already see what's happening. Uh, in the base game, uh, players can lose at most two plus five coins for military, maybe three coins if there's a wonder, one brown. All right, so uh, you know, a lot of depth into why he does this. Um, let's see. When talk talks about wonders. But then he says at the end, maybe you played Seven Wonders Duel in a different way. What are your thoughts? Um, Dimitri, you keep switching back and forth between your entire thing between Seven Wonders Duel and Seven Wonders. Um, I am going to assume, though, since you started and ended with Duel, and you only talked about Seven Wonders in the interim, you're talking about Seven Wonders Duel. Dude, I can't help you. We only played it a couple times and thought it was too mean because we didn't like how the military was implemented and we got rid of it. So, I'm I'm sorry. I, I I can't help you. I can say, though, that sounds like a real shame, man. Don't automatically just sell all the points cards. Next time you play, try to win by getting those things into play. You'll have more fun if you mix it up a little bit. Um, you know, don't just get yourself into a rut. It's I, I think it's really important to the long term. Well, actually, not for you guys because you played it fifty times. So clearly, you dig it. So I mean, who am I to say? Hey, keep on keeping on if you're enjoying it. But I, I do think that's a shame because you're kind of robbing yourself of a lot of the joy of discovery and exploration by purposely um, playing the exact same strategies over and over again and just waiting to see how well luck puts the right card into your hand at the right time. Um, but anyway, uh, Dimitri's next question, why didn't I review Fox in the Forest? Did you play it? My thoughts. I did not review it because the publisher never once contacted me about it. I totally would have covered that game. A two-player only trick-taking game that apparently everybody says is awesome sauce? Yes, please. I would totally be all over that. But the publisher never contacted me. And I've gotten to the point where if a publisher doesn't contact me about a game, I will very rarely chase after a game because... You know what? Um, for every one game a publisher doesn't contact me about, there's ten more that are sitting on my shelf that have to get played. So it, it's not like I need more games coming in. So that's why. But I would have definitely tried Fox and Force. It looks really cool. I've heard nothing but great things about it. Okay. Chester says that as a designer of video games and now a popular board game reviewer and aficionado... Mm. Have I ever, or would I ever consider designing or creating a board game of my own? Chester bets I would be great at it. Chester, can I suggest you go to faq.rado.com and check... Which one is it? 
Um, where is it? It's number... Well, if you just go to faq.raw.com, there's a table of contents right at the top. And I've got the contents right here. Oh, number 19. faq.raw.com, number 19. Answers your question, Chester. Okay, also, just curious if I have ever met Anthony and Francis from Ant Lab Games. Uh, aside from you and Jen, of course. Uh, they're uh, Chester's favorite board game playthrough reviewers. Uh, if so, talk about your encounter. I have never met um, uh, Francis and, and Anthony. Anthony. Uh, they seem very nice. Um, I'm sure they'd be great to play a game with. I have never... I don't think I've ever been within 100 miles of them. So I, I, I have nothing to tell you. Finally, if I had to choose five games for any random person as a board game starter collection without knowing anything about that person at all, sight unseen, which games would you put on that list? So essentially... These game, these would be games that you feel would have the best chance of appealing to anyone and hooking them into the hobby. That is a very specific question, Chester. Um, man, is there such a thing as a game that has true universal appeal? Surely not. I don't think so. But you don't say truly universal. You just say best chance. Um, ah, oh, jeez. Ah, oh, jeez. I, yeah, well, seeing as how they're new, that means they're going to need gateways. And you know what? I have done two separate top 10 gateway game countdowns, Chester, uh, over the last five years. I would point to probably any of those. Um, but I would not try to pick ones that would appeal to everybody. I would try to find out what the person wants, except I don't do that, as I just talked about earlier. But if I were to do that, I would try to find out what the person likes in real life and tailor games for them, because there's so many bajillion games out there, there's no reason not to tailor. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I I don't don't think there is a one-size-fit-all for games. Nor should there be. Nor does there need to be. Alrighty. Uh, Game questions. From Christian. What are my current top five games to play with Leisure for Jen? And I guess the question is actually directed at Jen. What five... Which Okay, so I'm off the hook. Honey Pie, mm. what five games would you play given the chance? Any of my top 26. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Well, but uh, you, know, you realize that's, that is five years old now, that list. They're still good games. Uh-huh. So you're saying nothing that's come out in the last five years you would want to play given the chance right now. I have no idea what's come out in the last five years. Um, I I really enjoyed Roll for the Galaxy. We got an expansion for that that we were playing the other day. That was really good. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. What was it we just played yesterday that we played a couple times in a row? Oh, I don't know. We play stuff all the time. I'd have, that, to, I'd have to look. It was that game where the um, guy went through the merchant. the uh, Corinth. Yeah. Well, we played it twice in a row because it was a, a rolling, right, that... 15 minutes. I know, it so, was fun. It was yeah. easy, it was quick, I loved it. So of all the games out there, if you could play one game right now, it would be Roll for the Galaxy or Corinth. I don't know. <laughs> you, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of all the games. Yep. But that one was just recent, and of course Roll is one of my favorites. Why don't you just say Gloomhaven? Oh, Gloomhaven, that's a good answer. The fact that you keep, I mean, this is the second or third time that you have. it has not come up to you automatically, makes me think maybe you don't like Gloomhaven as much as I thought you liked Gloomhaven. Since it keeps not bubbling up to the top of your brain. It hasn't been played in like a year. Yes, I know. It, That's all the more reason you'd want to play my, it. It's nowhere near the top of my brain. Mm, yes. Okay. Fair enough. Well, that was a question for you. He didn't ask me. So, um, right. Moving on to Mark, who has been wondering about the whole board games as art topic. 
There's no doubt that this war of mine, the grizzled, freedom of the Underground Railroad, fog of love, a distant plane, etc., are leaps forward for the genre as they push creative boundaries. But it begs the fundamental question. When was the idea that board games are about fun and or enjoyment put on the back burner, and why? Do you think publishers will continue to push boundaries where there is no inherent fun or joy in the design? Will it make same, uh, uh, sales viable? Do you and Jen gain satisfaction and enjoyment from these designs that are, really aren't meant to be about fun? Thoughts? Well, um, Mark, considering your choices to throw out there, I don't know that um, I, I think those games are designed to be fun. And I, well, I can't speak to Disemplain. I've never played it. But um, Fog of Love. Remember that game, honey? It was the, the date game, you know, where we had to play cards about, you know, romantic. It was like a romantic comedy. And we were trying. I had my oh. secret needs I needed. Yeah. You had your secret needs. And it was a silly game. It was about interpersonal relationships. But yeah. it was still a fun game. Yeah, actually, I don't. I was just reading through all of the, his examples again because you. This War of them, Mind. So, I know. I just had yeah. to. Right, okay. Think yeah. about what they were. And um, actually, I think those are all really good games and they should be out there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I think being in a room with somebody, hopefully, that you like and care about and whatever, if talking about this kind of stuff and sharing these kinds of experiences, I mean, if you're with somebody you care about, I think that's actually an additional bonus. To the fun you have playing a game. And there might be some uncomfortable moments, but actually it gives you a chance to talk about stuff. So I think all of that is well and good. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad it's it's being done. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. I certainly agree with everything you just said. And But I would add, Mark, I would suspect the designers of every game you've mentioned would be disappointed to hear you classify them as not fun. Um you remember this war of mine? Yeah. Yeah, it was a dark topic, but you had fun playing. I did. There was a sense of satisfaction as you survived and you built things and you you know scrounged stuff up. We had fun playing the game. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. though it was kind of a dark topic. Uh, the Grizzle, down if you remember it, is the World War yep. One trenches game. Yep, I do. Yeah, where we it's an imperfect information game. I mean, we had fun playing that game. Yep. Um, it's it, you know, I mean, and Freedom of the Underground Railroad. We had fun. We enjoyed it. Even though these are heavy topics, it, it, it doesn't lessen the fun factor. I mean, I think you're talking about a game that's basically Schindler's List, the game. Where, okay, yeah, nobody has fun watching Schindler's List. But everybody comes out of it saying, yeah, that was an amazing experience and I'm glad I had it. Um, you know, because it, you know, it, 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 it enriched my life and it, it made me understand the human condition more. I mean, I guess there's probably games like that. The only one I can think of is Train. And that's not commercially available. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, Mark, I, I have to kind of take fault with your core premise that these games aren't fun. I, I think the designers, even when they're trying to tackle heavy subjects and, and heady, weighty issues, are still trying to make something that is fun to play and win. And that's good, too. Alrighty, Thomas says, Can you think of final thoughts in which you were deliberately too kind to the game? And if so, for which game? Um, that's hard for me to say. Um, for me to be able to judge that, I would have to go back and play the game another 20 times. And then maybe I would find that, oh, you know what? My, my, my final thoughts that were born out of playing the game you know, a couple of times maybe don't warrant that. But, um, geez, I don't... Ugh. All right, let's, let's look at the Big Master list. Although, again, it's a list now of like 1,300 games. So it's going to be kind of hard for me 
to um, find a, a few games amongst 1,300. No, is it 1,300? I'm sorry. It's 1,238 games that I have run through now. Goodness me. Goodness me. I've been uh, busy seven years. So, what is that? What is that actually divided by? All right, so calculator. That's uh, a little less than 12, 200 games a year. 38 divided, what was it? A little less than 200 games a year. Yep, yeah, 176 games a year divided by 12. That's 14 games a month. Uh, so that's a game every other day for seven years straight. <laughs> Under those circumstances, yeah, probably maybe I missed the mark here or there. I, I'll cop to that, but I couldn't tell you um, in all honesty. All I can say is I try to be as fair to them as I can every step of the way. Um, I know a lot of people accuse me of being a shill, and uh, but I, I don't feel that's the case. If it's a bad game, I just don't film it, period. Yeah. Alrighty, uh, number two from Thomas. In my UK Games Expo rundown for last year, I met Paul Grogan of Gaming Rules, and I asked him if he thought that his videos were better, clearer, or better slash clearer than those of Rodney Smith. Um, what is your opinion on the matter? Ooh, that's really interesting. I can personally say from my own experience that Paul's uh, was it Gaming Rules, the channel UK, the the board game instructional channel Gaming Rules is a superior teaching tool for me than watch it played. Uh, you know, Of course, Paul himself wouldn't say that. I'm sure he agrees because obviously he does it in such a way that works better for him as a person. But the thing is, um, you know, I mean, Paul and Rodney both do the, the same basic thing. Uh, you know, they both have the same basic beats. But Rodney feels so scripted to me because he is he is scripted to the nth degree i mean he writes out his script he uh you know he reads he does a very good job he's personable and and friendly and charming and and you know he's very clear and succinct and uh but for me it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other because uh because it, it feels very scripted to me whereas paul i'm sure is also working from a script it doesn't feel that way. He feels much more natural and in the moment. He feels much more like somebody who is just sitting down with the table at me and just trying to teach me how to play the game. Um, and so for my taste, uh, he works better than Rodney. Uh, never mind the fact that I, mean, I know he, he often puts in little funny asides. He does faces and stuff like that just to kind of engage me more. Uh, so, and I don't know, maybe I just respond more to... Darg! And the battery went dead. Let's see. So, all right, we have a fresh battery. This is, of course, happening because we're filming in our game room instead of my filming room because Jen wanted to keep an eye on certain chickens. Yes. So, my fault. My yes. Fault. I am completely blameless in Me all things. All righty. All right. So, uh, right. I, I, I think I got my point across. Rodney is great. He's an incredibly charming and charismatic man. It's more my own personal hang-up in that uh, the more scripted something sounds, the less I like it. And you throw a British accent on top of it, well, that can only help. So, let's see, what was Thomas's next question? Just for fun, what do you least enjoy from a podcast question? When you are asked to reiterate what you already said in the final thoughts of a game, or when you need to browse your memory? Um, that is a no-brainer. I do not enjoy browsing my memory at all. Uh, my brain just doesn't work that way. It's, uh, it's, it's, 
It's, it's quite painful. Um, and it's I, even worse for me. Yes, indeed. Uh, whereas repeating myself, I don't know, you may have noticed, it's something I have a tendency to do <laughs> anyway. It's a very bad habit. And, Genetic. And, yeah. And, you know, even if I didn't do it just as a matter of course, I, I used to do a lot of theater. So I was used to just spouting out the same lines over and over again. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, that's, that's a total no-brainer. What would my response be to Tom Vassell's opinion that Moria is too long and boring? I would have to say he is a silly man. Uh, that makes no sense to me at all. It's a filler. It's like a 20-minute game. I guess I guess maybe this is a reflection of the fact that I am so happy that my gaming circumstances where I only play with Jen and no one else is uh, for the better because two-player gaming takes half the time as four-player gaming. So I don't know. Maybe Tom's on to something. Maybe it's too long and repetitive at four players. I, I, that, I don't see why that would be the case, though. I think that game doesn't change anything if you add more players. Does it? I'm not quite sure. Um, but yeah, we, we found it was, it was a fast, charming, uh, simple little engine builder. So I, I'm just going to chalk that up to maybe we would think, maybe we'd be intent, inclined to agree with Tom if we played it four-player, but why would we? Uh, uh, does the new expansion for Roll for the Galaxy change your rating of the game? Oh. Uh, yes, Honey Pie. So, um, Roll for the Galaxy, when you did your top 10 a million years ago, was not out at that point. Um, but if we work under the assumption that it was, I'm sure it would have been in your top 10. So let's just arbitrarily say it's your number six game. Just uh, It's your number six game of all time, right? Okay, yeah. I really now, like it. Uh, yes, yes, you do. Having played Rivalry, mm-hmm. would that bump it up to your number five? I'd have to go back and look and see what number five. Oh! But... Number five is Escape, Curse of the Temple. Oh! And so you had it just. All right, so it was Curse, Escape, Curse of the Temple, and then um, Roll for the Galaxy. Does does that big customizable fat die that you get to make any way you want? Does that bump it up one notch? No. No. I enjoyed it, but it is not a game maker changer thinger for me. Okay. I mean, it's an example of what we were talking about earlier. You prefer, uh, in our current circumstance, a, a uh, expansion is just kind of more stuff as opposed to like fundamentally changing the game. Well, I would say that fundamentally changes the game because it gives you a huge customizable die and it makes that market thing happen. And Well, okay, the market thing, that's a big, significant change. But you weren't that crazy about the market. I did not like it. It was too much more thinking than... Yeah, I mean, it it was... Again, it's an example. It's it's the equivalent of the the side market, the side street in um, Dungeon Pets. It just adds this whole extra game. It makes the game significantly longer. Um, And I guess that, you know, adding the die makes the game longer, too, because now you have to play to 15 instead of 12. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I... So the question is, does it bump it up? No, it does not. No, it not. does not. All right. So it's, it stays steady at the arbitrary, completely made up number six. <laughs> All righty. Why uh, did I finally decide to give a rating to Dragonfire? Because if he's not mistaken, if Thomas is not mistaken in the past, I've always counted it as an expansion for Shadowrun. And, and, you know, I mean, arguably by my own personal rules, I should keep it because it really it is. It's just, it's just Shadowrun, but I'm playing with the fantasy expansion. Like, you know, Clank in Space is, oh, I'm just I'm just playing Clank, but we're in a spaceship now instead of a cave. It's still the same core DNA. But I'll, I'll say the, the thing that finally pushed it was it's the latest expansion, which we still haven't quite finished. That werewolf curse, mm. it so bogs the game down. 
I'm really, I mean, I mentioned this in my video, and the more we played it, it's just, it re I mean, you know, one of the most wonderful things about Shadowrun and by association Dragonfire is its incredible speed and velocity. So much happens to that game so fast. And um, now that every round we're having to stop and evaluate, well, what should we do with this card? What should we do with this card? I, I really, you know, I, I was kind of on the fence about it, and I'm just really not keen on it at all. So, so much so that it has dropped Dragonfire. Still, it's a, it's a solid 8, but it's dropped it out of the 9 realm that Shadowrun Crossfire is in. I look forward to getting rid of this curse because it is a literal curse! I guess on one level it's actually doing its job. I do feel cursed having to do this extra work every <laughs> round. Um, and I look forward to the day that in the next expansion and the expansion after that, uh, Kalisham or, or um, Sword Coast or whatever they are, that I can lift it so we can just go back to playing the game normally! Alrighty. Um... Number seven from Thomas. Do I have any interest in checking out the expansion to Feast for Odin, which includes random start buildings? Well, you know what? Random start buildings do not... Um, in, oh, yeah, sure, that's nice. But I am very interested in this, not because of that, because I've been told, after my top ten Uwe, that um, the new expansion, what was it, Norwegian Fisherman or whatever it is, uh, does significant stuff to address the random card draw that we hated... And it was the single reason we got rid of that game, even though so much of it was so awesome, we just hated it. Just the, the random dumb luck that, oh, I just keep getting harpoons. And I'll never use one. Why do I keep not getting what I need and you get everything you need and it's just giving you a small but, but a not insignificant leg up just through pure luck? And I don't know what it is. I guess you can now... T there are buildings you can go to turn those excess weapons in for other resources. So, yes, I want it for that. Um, and I'm so bummed. I've... Um, and I did ask Asmodee months ago after Essen, hey, could you send me out the expansion? Uh, just thinking, well, what the heck, I'll give it a try. And now that I've heard it actually addresses my core problem, I really want to give it a try. But for whatever reason, Asmodee just never sent me it. So I guess it's not going to happen. But by the same note, does it sometimes happen that a new expansion for a game you don't own anymore makes you want to try it again? I think I just answered that question affirmative. Yeah, sure it does. If it's an expansion that addresses a problem we have with the original game, of course. Okie doke. Uh, let's move on to Chester. Uh, let's see. Oh, it is Chester's second email. When uh, you have time to play games with Jen for your own entertainment, do you ever play music in the background? And if so, what do you listen to as backdrop music? Ooh, I was just telling somebody about this at GameStorm. Oh, were you? Yes. What did you tell them? I told them all about Mellow Dice. You actually remembered the website? I did. Oh, fantastic. What was the website? Mellow Dice. Dot? Dot. Google it. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work, yeah, probably. M E L O D I C instead of melody, it's melodice. Well, if I have Mel M E M E L O D I C E, it's melodice.org, well, unfortunately. But no, it, it's it's the first three. Yeah, yeah, melodice is awesome. We use it all the time. Uh, we used it in Malta all the time too. Really started doing it when we got that that gamer table that had a built-in stereo. Remember, it had the speakers underneath it. Yeah, and uh, and I was just trying to do playlists and stuff like that and then somebody pointed out Melodice and it was like oh my gosh this is amazing so we, we use it all the time uh, and in fact when we got to America because uh, in our gaming room we did, you know our, our home speaker our home theater is in a different room it's in the living room now because we actually have a game room I went and got a little 
uh, Bluetooth, nice sounding speaker to have over in the corner. So I just bring my phone in and we just play Melodice while we're playing. And, uh, you know, we're always playing brand new games. They've just come out. So there's no playlist for them. But, you know, hey, if it's a game set in ancient Rome, I just play Trajan. If it's a game set in uh, space, I play... Actually, it's really weird. There are very few good playlists on Melodice for science fiction because so much science fiction music is just super annoying. Um, but yeah, yeah, we absolutely love it. So yeah, Melodice is the awesome. Uh, so much so that even Jen remembered it. Okay. Uh, Yarens says, Do you think the rise of co-ops has to do with people's social needs? With climate change, economic crisis, racism, fear of terrorism surrounding us, people might be tired of competing against each other and are drawn towards games that bring us together. Or do you think that co-ops would have always been preferred, but their mechanisms are more difficult and therefore competitive games were just needed before gaming could evolve uh, to a lar- to our current large amount of co-ops? Mm. What do you think, Honey Pie? That's interesting. I know my answer. But I'll let you think while I get a drink of water, because I'm very thirsty. Okay. I should have done this when uh, we had to stop filming. That would have been smart. That's why I got myself a cup of something. Yes. Um, I think that it's a lot easier as humans to be um, a bit competitive. And certainly in a gaming situation, it's easier to just, you know, both be striving towards a goal and whoever gets there first wins. So to me, it is likely that that would be the first leg of any, you know kind of expansion and I think actually the cooperative games are harder and also that they would they would be kind of a second stage it takes more thinking to figure out how to make it work um and maybe it's just a a bit more of a mature genre as well what do you think I think uh it's just a matter of evolution of the industry if somebody had thought of if if the woman who made Monopoly had made it co-op, actually, I, right from the get-go, the lady who made Monopoly, yeah. oh, yeah, no, go ahead. You can, you, yeah. Well, she had not intended it to be a game where exactly. you were supposed to, you know, rule over everybody and charge everybody rent and become rich and everybody else dies a pauper. That was not her intention. Well, no, it, it was her intention, but it, it was a cautionary tale game where you're not supposed to have fun doing it. It's supposed to be a, a peon to the evils of capitalism and, you know, trying to educate the masses. But then it turned out, oh, well, uh, you know, then it was just stolen from her, ironically, uh, by Parker Brothers or Milton Bradley, whichever it was. And uh, and they said, yeah, let's just uh, take out any of those socially conscious elements and just make it all about trying to destroy each other. And But if they hadn't done that, and if instead they said, hey, you know what, we really like this design and they paid her appropriately for her work mm-hmm. but then they said let's make this a game where everybody works together to make the world a better place it would have been huge um i i just think cooperation or taking competition between human players out of gaming is a relatively new idea it's a relatively new idea just within the sphere of humanity of, of human society. It is so ingrained in us going back thousands of years that gaming is all about competition. Sports is about competition. And it's just taken a while. I mean, obviously, co-ops have been a pretty big deal in, uh, in video games for a while because video games, for the most part, have been solo games. Uh, and it's just like, well, hey, uh, it's, it was easier for video games to become cooperative. To, it's, it's easier on some level to make a cooperative video game than a competitive video game. 
you know, the, the bar is, 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 is tougher to clear to make a good competitive game for video game industry. And, uh, yeah, so I just think it's a case that it just hadn't occurred to him. If it occurred to people sooner, if people had been, if made Scrabble a cooperative game back in the 50s, where everybody works together to try and make the best words out of what they have available, that would have been amazing. And I think it would have caught on. I think it's just um, you know artists building upon top of artists, building on top of artists, building on top of artists. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just a natural creative process. You like to read and you like to game. Were you ever into choose your own adventure books since they're basically a combination of both? And if so, would you recommend some? I couldn't recommend any because I haven't read any since I was a little kid. But yeah, as a little kid, I loved them. You know, in the 70s. <laughs> I assume you read them too. I don't think so. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought they were cool. You know, and I did the whole thing of, you know, sticking my finger in four or five different places so I could always go back and not have to reread the whole thing over. But, you know, they weren't necessarily life-changing for me or anything like that. I just thought they were neat. For Jen, and I can answer if I like, if you... Oh, wait a minute. Is that a personal question? That's a personal question. We'll have to come back to that one. It's about Harry Potter. Ooh. Okay. Moving on to Gerald. Number one. Recently, I said that Brass Birmingham is superior to Lancashire. Um, on my video list rankings, I have Lancashire ranked 66 and Birmingham in the wasteland of unrated forgotten games. Any reason, you and Jim seem to like the old Uwe Shackles. It seems that Lancashire is closer to have your taste changed. No, it has nothing to do with that. This is just a quirk of how I rank stuff. I consider Birmingham to be a expansion, an expansion to Lancashire. And as such, I have labeled, I I label expansions as pre-ordered, I think. So I can keep track of them separately from everything. And that includes games that, uh, like, well, like uh, Dragonfire we were talking about earlier, or, you know, the various offshoots of Pandemic or something like that. That's the sole reason. I could have just as easily uh, list uh, Birmingham and then put Lancashire off as a pre-ordered and considered Lancashire to be the expansion to Birmingham. Except that's not true. Because Lancashire is Brass, and so Brass is a game from, what is it, uh, 2009 or 2008 or 2007. Uh, 2007, I think. So, uh, it's a 2007 game. And when I am using my rankings list to figure out, hey, what are the best games of the year, I don't consider... I mean, if I did a top 10 expansions of the year, Birmingham would make the list. It doesn't make top 10 games because it is an expansion. It's just an expansion that happens to stand alone. In the same way that, as far as I'm concerned, Dominion Intrigue is an expansion to Dominion. It is not its own game. It should not be listed twice in the top 100 of Board Game Geek. So, anyway. And, by the way, folks, uh, it looks like Gert's about to knock over the camera. So, Gert, (laughs) you can just stay over there. Settle down. Um, and for folks saying there's a camera why aren't you right now I'm filming the wall because the <laughs> camera is pointing away from us because Jen does not want to appear on camera while we do these things otherwise I totally would okay you and Jen's gaming per- preferences how does Jen and then you rank those three games on enjoyment of playing them without looking at your ranking list honey mm. you're going to need to think uh, Gerald insists that you rank at the gates of Lo Yang Role player and Concordia. I don't know what role player is. Role player is the game where we're trying to make a fantasy character. You know, we have to figure out its strength, its constitution, its dexterity, its wisdom. It's a dice drafting game where we roll a bunch of dice and then we're grabbing them. Because remember, it's it's like there's this grid, and we have to take the dice. We have to put them in the grid. Oh, okay. And um, you know, if you get a six and a three and a one, that and you put them all in the strength row, that means you're Gert. Knock it off. 
This is getting to be problematic. Gert, knock it off. Um, it's we, we played it several times. You would totally recognize it if you saw it. It's not the one with the little dice tray at the bottom of the board, is it? No, I will just go get it. And in the meantime, you can think about how you rank Concordia. Do you remember Concordia? I know what the box looks like. Uh, okay, this is not working. The dogs are now crawling all over the camera, and... Uh, Okay. So, folks, we're going to have to stop for a second and get out of here. I'm afraid Jen's chicken time is at an end because the dogs are making this kind of difficult. Um, we'll be right back in a second, and I will have shown Jen role player, <laughs> and she'll say, oh, yeah, that one, of course. Yep. And then she can answer Gerald's question. Although, right off the bat, Gerald, that should tell you something. She remembers Lo Yang, and she doesn't remember those other two. So the ranking is already done, but we'll be back with that in just a minute. Okay, we're back for the second time. Jen assures me the pups will be a bit less unruly because they've now had their dinner. Yep. Uh, we will see. Daisy still seems to be pretty uh, pretty enthusiastic about life at the moment. But that is kind of her thing. <laughs> That's kind of her Daisy thing. Let's see here. But anyway, getting back to that email. All right, it was the three games, which Jen did look at. Yes. And she didn't remember them at all. But where is questions? Q&A folder, right. Honey, yes. rank role player at the gates of Luoyang and Concordia. Okay, I'm going to go Concordia last. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go uh, role player middle. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do Luoyang atop. All right. Yeah. Uh, apparently, Gerald didn't need to have any explanation for why. He didn't ask for that. He just wants the rankings. My ranking would be role player number one. And um, Concordia number two and Lo Yang number three. Mm. Lo Yang at the bottom of the list. Wow. I will give my reasons though. Okay. Or will you give your reasons? After you give yours. My reasons are uh, Lo Yang at the bottom solely because of the the totally pointless and gratuitous attack cards. It is just so dumb that those are there. And uh, and so I rank it with that in mind. Actually, all the games I rank, I try to rank them based on their core rules. Mm not on house rules that we might do, which is why Lorenzo Il Magnifico is in the sevens, even though it's a clear eight. But it, it's that stupid two-player um, tightening up the board that is just awful and hurts the game. Uh, means even though we play without that rule, I still rank it officially based on its rules. And so the same thing is true for Lo Yang. Otherwise, Lo Yang would be much higher. Jen, of course, is judging it based on how we actually play, where we take those cards out. Ah. But I do not. Uh, they're, they're, they're there. They're part of the game. Uve's a smart man. He had a good reason for putting him in, and that means it's the weakest of those three. And uh, what's it? Uh, role player is just one of the best games we've played in years. So it's a, it's an easy top. Uh, Concordia is really awesome too, but it's just in the middle. So do you have anything to add to that, honey pie? Nope. Okay. So I guess I wasn't going to share my reasons. Ah, it was all a trick. Well, okay, Loyang is good, but apparently, like you said, it's good because of you, your house rule. Um, role player is really, really, really good. Yes. Once when I, I had when a I look at the box, I did remember it. When and I, it is really good. Yeah, as soon as I showed Jen the box, she said, Oh, this is the one where you do this and you do that and all that. And it immediately came back to her, as I knew it would. Yep. Um, I'm a visual person. Yeah. Um, yes, so that's why. Alrighty. Do you think that mean, quote, take that games, the ones that encourage enjoyment from backstabbing and destroying stuff directly belonging to your friends and family, could fire up psychotic behavioral brain patterns for players that play those games rarely for players who will only play these game types of games and get this experience all the time 
and for young children learning how to play board games that are only exposed to those types of games. Wow. Well, I assume that there are the paths in your brain that are stimulated. The more you do stuff, the more you make an action a habit, the stronger those paths get. So I'm going to say yes. For habitual players who do that, that is a reward path that they um, have trained and enjoy. Okay. Um, I would say if you start young, those paths get reinforced you know, as you grow. So yeah, probably also that that is a danger there. Okay. That would be my guess. I don't play a psychiatrist on TV or anything. Alrighty. You said these dogs were going to calm down. They are calm. Uh, so I just gave you a light lick on the um, outer hand. Here she comes again. Settle down. Gertrude, settle down. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, the whole nature versus nurture debate and all of that. I uh, Am I predisposed to not like take that games because of my brain patterns? Um, you know, what is it that makes me different than other people who actively enjoy it? Is it some representation of psychotic behavior, behavioral brain patterns? I don't know. I'm inclined to think no. I'm inclined to think people's brain chemistry is dif- different and games appeal to people of a certain type because of the way their brains are wired. Not that the games will in, will in and of themselves rewire the, their brains. I suspect that's the case, but I have no idea because like Jen, I am also not a behavioral psychologist, nor do I play one on TV. And now the dogs are starting to go at it. I was promised well-mannered and well-behaved dogs. I just got some Gert nozzle on my glasses. Yep. You had that coming. Okay. Moving on to uh, to Lassie, who... Oh, dear. Yeah, I'm afraid we're going to have a frap. Yep. That's Gert. So... They're playing Mouthy Beagle at the moment. Yes. Yeah, this is... They've got energy. Uh-huh. <laughs> you guys want to hear Beagle frapping? Probably not. It's uh, not the personal section, right? No, it is not the personal okay. section. Well, they might get down and go run We'll around. see what happens. Okay. All righty. Or they'll just knock over the camera, one or the other. I'll hold on to the camera. Okay. Um, right. Listening to your recent talk through, interviews and such, I feel you're a bit tired of running the channel. I honestly think your channel is the best board game YouTube channel in existence today. I'm a Patreon backer and watch here everything you record. So, of course, it makes me worry a bit that my weekly Rotto fix will disappear. Maybe in the not-too-distant future. Is this the case? Uh, no, as I've said in the past, and I'm sure you've heard me say, this is my job now. I, I have to do it. That's one of the things that contributes to the fatigue. But I know full well that this job is better than um, going back and working in the video game industry. So, until such time as I, we no longer have to pay for health insurance and a million other little things and whatnot i mean we just i need the money <laughs> um as you probably know since you're a fan of the show i mean heck i am now in the process of changing my filming behavior to start actually charging doing paid kickstarter previews because you know <laughs> it doesn't pay very well to do uh you know be a full-time board game i know people look at how much money it says patreon says i make but i don't make 
all that much money. Uh, a sizable portion of it goes to Paula. A sizable portion of it goes to Patreon. A sizable portion of it goes to um, taxes. A sizable portion of it goes to the um, physical rewards, the postcards and all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it gets gobbled up pretty quick. So, uh, yeah, I've, don't worry. Uh, Lassie, I'm going to be doing this for a while longer yet. Uh, let's see. Next up. If if I am feeling a bit tired, what's the reason for that? The hobby not only being your work, but also starting to feel like work? Yeah. Uh, or is it the people in the community that criticize you? Yes. Um, uh, where you have to defend yourself from time to time? Yes. Or can you actually get enough board games and just wish for something else to do? Yes. Yes to all those things. On another subject, I have an important comment to one of your statements I've heard you say many times. It's about your final thoughts. You wish you never started doing them and just followed the Rodney Smith model of, of not giving personal opinions. I'm quite new to the hobby, and it's not obvious to me why things are good or bad. I have found um, uh, several times watching your run-throughs thinking, this game is not for me. Uh, then watched your final thoughts, which opened my eyes for why the game is brilliant. Went back to see the run-through again, and a few days later, the game is one of my favorites on the gaming table. <laughs> well, see, what you're saying there is, Lossie, I am not doing a good enough job in my run-throughs that you could draw that conclusion for yourself. And I'm, and I'm curious as to know why you feel that there's something me just saying, oh, look how clever this mechanism is, because you're responding to me telling you about the mechanism rather than me actively showing you the mechanism in action. I think that... Well, I, I, that's not fair. I can say, for myself, that is a much more useful demonstration to actually see it in action and watch it you know, come to fruition rather than just somebody saying, oh, by the way, it's really cool when this happens. Okay, here's the thing, though. You what is the thing, Honey Pie? You have an encyclopedic knowledge of all of the tips and techniques and this and that's and ins and outs and this is cool because of that and whatever. Most people don't have that. And so if you're demonstrating that, they're just like, oh, hey, especially if they're new in the industry or the hobby, they're just like, okay, so this is how this game works. They don't know that that's unique or different or special or an, a vast improvement on X, Y, or Z. So once you, in your final thoughts, you frame that it is a special something of X, Y, or Z, then they can start to appreciate that and understand that it is. It's, it's the build standing on the shoulders of giants thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's essentially what he's saying. Is you're giving him like insight into kind of a, a second tier insight. Yeah, I understand. Well, Lossie, you don't have to worry about it because it is my standard policy now. So I, I don't think I could change it even if I wanted to. Uh, I just don't want to because I do worry. I mean, your, your, your story is um, certainly an upbeat one. But I tend to worry more about people who literally just don't watch the run-through at all, just skip straight to the final thoughts and say, oh, Rado liked it or Rado didn't like it, and judge it based solely on that. Because I then wonder, why do I even do the run-through? But I know you've heard me say that as well. So, but anyway, like I said, it is part of the format, so it's not like I can get rid of it anyway. So, fear not, my friend. Okay. Spear not. Spear not. As Jen would say. Right. Uh, right. So, yeah, they're just not going to stop. Alrighty. This is not very exciting for you guys listening in the car, <laughs> but they are now jumping up and down. Oh, dear. Okay, we'll just try to keep on m m um, muscling through, because I really hate having to do extra editing by starting and stopping all the time. 
uh, we've played, you have played all the Aeon's end boxes. Does it make sense to start with them in the order they were released, or does it make sense to start with Legacy? I understand you start as a trainee in Legacy. If starting with Legacy, is there any downside to the experience of the prior games afterwards? No. 100%, I would always recommend wholeheartedly, full-throatedly, start with Legacy, play that all the way through, um, play a few games after it's over, mix things up and whatnot, and then... Once you've had your probably, I don't know, uh, 10 to 15 sessions, then it's time to go out and get another, uh, either base box or one of the other expansions. It is by far hugely better to start off with Legacy and then play the other stuff. Uh, easily, easily. Alrighty, and then further, have I ever considered designing a board game? I have very good design ideas and my final thoughts of which games have shortcomings. Well, I believe I covered that earlier in this very one. Go to faq.rado.com and check out... Was it number 13? Was it number 13? No. Was it number 16? No. It's one of them. It's right there on the table of contents right at the top. I talk about there and there's a whole thread devoted to the topic of me being a board game designer. Short answer is no. I am not going to do that. And you can find out why following the FAQ. Uh, next up, Trey wonders, do I think Snowdonia stands the test of time in 2019? Uh, you know that I've mentioned it from time to time, even saying it was in my top worker placement, top 10. Uh, if I had a chance to, you know, oh, Trey has a chance to get the deluxe Kickstarter version at a great price, but wonders if he should hold off for Alubari or explore other options. I only enjoy games such as Agricola, Keyflower, and Twa. I stumbled across the BGG thread where someone effectively said Snowdonia is one of the best worker placement games of 2012. Keyflower is one of the best worker placement games of all time. I'm curious to hear your thoughts if they've evolved over the years. Snowdonia could be released now as a brand new game no one had ever heard of before, and it would still be one of the best games of the year that came out that year. Snowdonia is just that good. It is absolutely brilliant. It doesn't reinvent the worker placement wheel, but it does so much with so little. And that deluxe version you can get has such an insanely huge amount of content. It's a no-brainer. Um, I mean, Alubari might be fantastic. I haven't had a chance to see it yet. But yeah, I, I, I think I definitely strongly believe that Snowdonia holds up. I'd ask Jen, but I bet you anything she doesn't remember what Snowdonia is. I've been to Snowdonia. There you go. Do you remember Snowdonia, Honey Pie? Uh, it is the game where there's the board with all the worker placements and the cards go around the edges of the board that represent us making tracks going up the Snowdonia Mountains and over the Snowdonia Mountains. We have to dig out the rubble that is represented by those cards, and then once mm. all the the, cube, the rubble cubes are gone, then we can actually oh, lay yeah, track, track on those cards. Yes, yes, of course I remember that. Uh huh. Well, game. right there, Trey. The fact that Jen remembers it, even though we probably haven't played the game for four or five years, tells probably. you something about its staying power in her brain. Um, when she couldn't remember role player, um, which she played within the last year. Um, although, don't get me wrong. I mean, role player is definitely better. Than, but no, Stodonia is amazing. It definitely stands the test of time. It's an evergreen. Okay, and last game-related questions. Michael squeezes in, looks like three. Question number one. Have you noticed yourself getting faster and faster during your run-throughs these days? I find when I watch the run-throughs from, say, three or four years ago, I speak at a noticeably slower pace and much less frantically. Oh. I'm surprised to hear that. I, I wouldn't have thought that was the case. I, I think I've been pretty much speaking at the same pace for... Um, 
well, pretty much the entirety of my, uh, since my mid to late 20s, I've been speaking at this pace. So, I mean, I'm not quite sure what you're saying. I mean, maybe I'm sped up not, I mean, maybe I'm getting more to my regular speed and maybe I was going slower at first because I was more, no, I don't know. I, well, I, it's hard for me to say because I watch everything on YouTube at 2x speed. I watch myself on YouTube at 2.5x speed. You know, uh, so everything is super fast, crazy. I mean, you can't get it fast enough for me. So I, I, I'm surprised to hear that. Maybe it's a reflection of something, but I, I don't have anything to say about that. Do you have anything to say about that, honey? Nope. All righty. Well, then you can answer question number two, which is for Jen. When you're playing games together rather than filming, does Richard beat himself up over his mistakes quite <laughs> as much as he does when he's filming a run-through? Well, it's been a while since I've listened to you film a run-through because you're no longer in my kitchen. Uh-huh. Doing <laughs> Fair <it>. enough. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yes, you beat yourself up quite a lot. Yes. Unfortunately. And uh, I can't seem to break him of that. Yeah, it's very, and I know it's very distressing for Jen. It's, 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 I don't, I was, I think we were talking about this earlier that there can often be times when we finish the game and said, yeah, that was really awesome. And you had a miserable time because I just kept calling myself stupid the whole time. Oh my God, I can't believe, how stupid am I? I'm such a moron, you know, type stuff. Yes, I hate and that. And it, it drives her nuts. And it is, I, I try not to do it. But, uh, yeah, I do it a lot um, because I genuinely believe I'm really not that good at these games. Um, and I think I prove it on a regular basis, and she just don't want to hear it. All righty. Um, question about Rado Runs Through Business. Well, more of a thinly veiled piece of hopeful constructive criticism designed as a question. Oh. While I do appreciate the work that Paolo does, and I like the fact that the Klingon subtitles are there, I often don't like to watch them turned on by default as I find them to be intrusive and disruptive while trying to understand what you're describing in terms of getting the overall feel of the game. I might turn them on later if I bought the game or if I become more interested in the details of the mechanics rather than the overall feel. As a result, I get a bit irritated by all by being told to always watch with the Klingon subtitles. Uh, would it be possible to promote these in an optional enhancement rather than a must-have? Your videos arguably work better to give the overall feel of the game without them. Well, it's literally me just saying it. it's It's like less than five seconds, buddy. It's okay. And don't forget to watch with the Klingon subtitles turned on. That's really it. You're going you're to be okay. I do keep repeating it because the vast majority of people don't. And I'm constantly worried because I do occasionally see threads on Board Game Geek where people saying, Rado said do this and it doesn't seem right. What, am I doing this wrong? Every time I see one of those threads on Board Game Geek, it's a dagger through my heart, which is why I keep reminding people to do it. Even though the vast majority of people, apparently you, it really sticks to you, but for most people, they just tune it out and don't even hear me say it. Which is why I've started trying to say it at least twice at the intro... Um, where it's just become such a part of the pattern that I think regular listeners don't hear it at all. And then at some point, when I make a mistake and I recognize that I make it, because that happens from time to time, I just, this is a quick reminder, folks. Paulo noted this. I, I'm sorry, buddy. I'm going to keep on doing it because I do think it's important. Um, I was going to say, if you don't like them, you could leave them turned off, but you can turn on the transcripts. Most people don't realize this. If you hit the three dots, the ellipse, below the video, there's a couple of options, and one of them is transcript. And if you turn on transcript and set it to Klingon, you can actually see it, not in the video, but to the side of the video. Literally, just a menu of every uh, note and when it's going to happen. Maybe that'll make them a little bit more attractive for you. Or, if you find them visually distracting, I guess you could... 
make the font smaller. But no, 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 you just don't like having to stop and read them. I totally get that. Maybe just turn on the transcripts instead. Maybe that'll work a little bit better for you. But I do feel it's important that I keep bringing them up because they are important. Um, but anyway, that's it, folks. We are now finished with one half of this. Gertrude seems to have calmed down, but not really, because now she's trying to climb all over Jim. Uh, the food does not seem to have calmed them down. So before we go on to the personal Q&A, I think somebody needs a walk. Yes. All right, so we'll be back in a few minutes, everybody, from your perspective. A few seconds. Hold on. Uh, we'll be right back. Okay, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, the walk is over. Gert has been freshly bathed because she rolled in God knows what. Yep. Lovely. Yes. Delightful. So charming is the Gertrude. (laughs) But we are now ready for your personal questions. And let's start out with uh, Paul. Paul. Paul, who uh, noted that I mentioned how influential Catch-22 was in my younger days. He was just wondering if I knew about the miniseries coming to Netflix. Mm. And how do I feel about it? And will I be watching it? Let me answer your question, Paul, by pointing out that you're wrong. It's actually coming to Hulu. Hulu! Come on, Paul. What kind of Catch-22 fan are you? Yes, it looks very, very cool. I haven't really looked at it very much. I haven't watched the trailer. I don't even know who's playing who. Is uh, George Clooney Major Major? Uh, is he Osarian? No, I think Osarian's going to be young now, right? It was always kind of weird to have Alan Arkin be Yosarian, although it's hard for me not to picture him as Yosarian, but, um, oh, oh, yes, I'm very excited about it, um, and I'm sure Jen could care less. I am looking forward to watching it. Really? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because it's, um, again, part of my childhood that I sort of missed. You, how was it part of your childhood that you missed? Well, cause, Just because you didn't read it? No, I read it, but I just... Oh, didn't. you read Catch, what, what, you read it in high school? I think maybe in seventh or eighth grade. Ah, all right. Something like that. But yeah, I just kind of, I think it was, it was, it was an assigned book, assigned mm-hmm. reading. So I just blew through it, answered whatever questions I had to answer, and moved on. Probably Ach. do another Black Stallion book. All right. Well, that'd be a, a real black eye. That was not a feather in your cap, honey pie. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, Andre is back with personal questions. Hi, Andre. Uh, I've mentioned in the podcast how we used to live in Austin, Texas. Austin. That's where Andre is now. Oh, very what, nice. What part of town did we live in? We lived out near Steiner Ranch. Well, in Steiner Ranch. Yes. In, yes. <laughs> okay. True. Yes. Yes, which is a uh, slightly more upscale suburb out by Lake Travis, basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, it was awesome. Alrighty. Nicest house we've ever had. And probably and ever will. Ever will have. Yep, that was, that was like at our zenith. <laughs> yep. When I was at Edge of Reality, yep. making the big... And also the biggest bucks. house we've ever had. I think that one is about 2,000 square feet. Yep. We, we tend to buy about 1,200 square feet. Yep, that's enough for us. It's about, it's about right. Did you like it there? Um, we liked a lot of what was there. We thought Austin was an amazing city. Loads of stuff going on. Very cultural, very artistic. Um, great barbecue. Uh, excellent Mexican. Oh my gosh, the Oasis on Lake, um, is it Lake Austin? No, yeah. I'm trying to remember. No, it's Lake Travis, right? No. Um, what's the one below the uh, dam? The Oh, I know. I, there's the two. I don't remember which one is yeah, which. Yeah, it's been, we've been gone for like 15 years, so pardon yeah. us for not. But anyway, the Oasis. Oh my gosh. They had the best fajitas. No, you're thinking of the iguana. Yes, I am. Yes, the Oasis was the one that was closer to us, which we went to yeah. every once in a while, and they had live music and all that. The yeah. Iguana was a bit farther away. Yeah, and the Oasis did have amazing views, but the Iguana did too. Yeah. 
but I don't even know if they're the still there. The iguana is out of business, I've been told. Oh, man. They had the best fajitas. It was like pineapple juice and beer marinade or something like that. It was so good. They had the best plastic cups. And they had great plastic cups. They glowed in the dark. Mine is gone. Would that be glued? They glued never in the dark? Get it back. Yeah. Um, he used it for his water cup by the bed for 15 years or so, and it finally <laughs> tracked and died, poor thing. Yeah. It had lost all its glow. Mm. Um, I guess that was kind of his follow-up question. What do you miss most? Uh, I'm going to say salt lick, iguana fajitas. Um, we had some good friends there, too, as well. And... The art scene was really nice. My friend Gail Stouffer, who lives in San Antonio, um, she's the one who introduced me to glass. She's still doing glass in San Antonio and doing amazing work. So if we were still back there, I'm sure, you know, I I would have, you know, uh, probably my career would have moved in different ways because we would have synergized off of each other. But as it was, I'm perfectly happy with the way my career's gone. Um, but yeah, what, what would you miss? I don't miss the fire ants. Don't miss the mosquitoes. Don't miss the crazy, crazy juniper pollen. Um, or the heat or the humidity. Right. Heat and humidity. That was also not very good. I can't believe you haven't mentioned the single most important thing about Austin. Two words. Mr. I, Sinus. I said salt lick, didn't I? No, Mr. Sinus theater. Mr. Sinus, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was yeah, awesome. That was very cool. I'm sure they're lo- they must be long gone by now. I, I didn't think it that. sued or something for being they, Mr. They, Sinus they, theory. Well, they they had to change their name. They were Mr. Sinus theater. Yeah, and then of they Mr. just Sinus. called themselves the Sinus Show to avoid uh, that problem. Okay. But yeah, they were awesome. They were really good. They had an amazing Christmas thing they would do where they had a production at Christmas time. We really enjoyed that. Pudding. Pudding and butter. Butter and pudding. Um, Let's see. Will you ever come back? My friends and I are huge fans of your work. If you ever do come back, I'll be happy to host you. What does that mean? You want us to come live with you in your spare bedroom? (laughs) We have beagles and now 14 chickens. (laughs) I don't think you know what you're offering. Yeah. Uh, As far as, I don't don't know. I guess we're going to Dallas in May. Dallas is kind of close to Austin. Yep, I, I said, did we want to rent a car and drive over there to get some salt lick? And you said no. Uh, yes, that's I mean, true. I did say last that. I knew, you could just get salt lick in Dallas Airport, too. Yeah, that's a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if there was some reason to go back. We went back um, once, I think, yeah, after we'd been in England for a couple of years because we'd stored a bunch of crap in a storage facility thing. And my most awesome brother-in-law, Ron. Hi, Ron. Hi, Ron. Hi, Ron. Um came he he yeah he flew to austin he rented a u-haul or we did or whatever anyway and he drove all of our crap that we couldn't take to we we didn't know how long we'd be in england so we left a bunch of crap in the storage shed anyway he drove it all the way back to california for us and they stored our crap for 15 years Uh (laughs) and then to make it even better when we moved here Ron drove all our crap up from <laughs> their house and brought it to us here. And he spent a couple days here afterwards even and helped us with, oh, the myriad repairs that this house needed so desperately. Um, so, yeah, Ron is an awesome brother. Hi, Ron. Hello, Ron. Shout out to Ron. Yes. Best well, brother ever. Or you mean brother-in-law. Well, I don't know. I brother- All right. He's, he's escalated. All yeah. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, Torchies or Taco Deli? I have no I don't idea. Recall either. 
Um, I don't. Was that an Austin thing? Yeah, I'm sure it must be. Oh, um, it must have been after. Our we time. always went to a particular Mexican restaurant. Remember, it was under the freeway mm-hmm. where there was like a coffee interchange. Was, I want to call it like Maria's or something like that. It was um, an old. Had been there since the '40s. Kind of a restaurant, family owned. Um, oh, it did start with an M. Oh. Yeah. We loved that. Yeah, it was really good. It was something like Marissa's or Marillio's or... I'm just going to say Maria's. Might be Maria's. Yep. And Amy's ice cream, of course. Yeah, I could actually look on your computer and probably find out where it is because I remember where it was. Oh, you mean if you what, if you look at Google Maps? Yeah. All right. Hold on. Hold on. Actually, Talk my, about... my computer is on the other side of you, but... Yes. Google Maps, Austin... Yeah. Mexican restaurants. This is exciting to listen to. No, indeed. Tappity, tappity, tap, tap. It is not exciting at all. All right. Okay. So, well, folks. You talk, just, I'll look. Well, I just, you just took the, I can't see what the next question is. Oh, that's a problem. It sure is. Well, just make something up. Uh, <laughs> talk about something. Give me the, I just need the next question. Okay. All right. The next question, while Jen is doing that. Uh, right. Well, the next question is for you. Not a question. For Jen only, was there ever a time when you were more hesitant to play games? And if so, what helped get you into the hobby? My we. <laughs> and then he, he forgot to finish his sentence. Because he's having a hard time getting his wife in the hobby. What got you over the hump of getting into the hobby, Henny Pie, while you're looking for this one particular Mexican restaurant? Um, you're not going to find it. It's probably gone. I mean, it's been 20 years. Yeah, it was right. It was, remember, right under the... I saw Rosetta's, but I don't think that was it. No. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, it's not any of those. Yeah, that's too far south. It's definitely... I mean, it was up, it was up farther north. Yep. Oh, Where's yeah, there's the University of Texas, so, yeah. It wasn't Trudy's. Yeah. Well, uh, sorry, anyway. Anyway, what got you into games, Honey Pie? Or what got you over the hump? Oh, I don't think there games? was a hump because you had me at Pandemic. Mm-hmm. We we the first game we played was Pandemic and it was when we were on a road trip in France and we were so hooked. It was like we almost couldn't wait to stop doing our touring around looking at French things so that we could play the game at night. What if uh What if I had gotten Pandemic from the guys at work the following week after we got back and we hadn't played it on the road and I'd brought it home and said, "Hey, let's play this." Mm, that might have been harder because then I would have been amongst all my distractions. Mm-hmm. And that is the thing with women. We have got 7,000 things going on in our brains at any one time. So if you remove 650,000 of those, then um, we can actually focus on gaming. All right. There's your answer, Andre. Moving on to Rachel, who uh, wonders, let's see. Oh, are we playing more? Um, three plus player gaming now that we're back in the states. Answer no. Nope. Um, in fact, if anything, less. Yeah. Because when we were in Malta, there was David Angela who came by every few months, and then there were people on vacation always visiting and playing. So actually, I would definitely say over the last six months we have played less multiplayer gaming. Yeah. Than in our, our comparable time in Malta. And also, do we have any plans for my big five O that's coming up in a couple of weeks? Answer, no. Yeah, I've suggested a couple of things, but he doesn't particularly care. I No, that's fine. I'm not particular. I'm not particularly bothered. It's of no great never mind to me. Although maybe Jen just has to say that because she doesn't want to give away her secret plans. (laughs) I know Mom has asked as well. 
his mom did get you a present on your birthday, which it turns out you love. Mm-hmm. The, the ninja foodie thing. Yeah. Right? No, I think that was Christmas, actually. Was it Christmas? Yep. And what'd she get you for your birthday? She got you... The paper towel roll with the hen on top. Oh, which was an excellent paper towel roll with a yep. little blue hen on top a, that yeah. matched your blue hen painting in the kitchen. It's not a painting. It's a sculpture. But sculpture. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have a Sicilian hen. Yep. In the kitchen. So, as far as I know, there are no plans, and I am totes fine with that. We tend to not have to do things on the day anyway. So, one thing I would like to do now that we're back on this side of the pond is go to Cozumel. um, Because I really like the diving there. We haven't been back in Cozumel probably like 20 years ago or something. And um, so, if it ends up that there was an opportunity where that happened, I would love to go spend a, a long weekend maybe in Cozumel. But I think right now with, with the various mother issues that I think it will not happen this year. Definitely. Okay, uh, we're back to Darren who accidentally snuck in a Marvel Comics Universe <laughs> question amongst his game questions. Sneaky. And I stopped off. But then continuing on, he basically writes the Magna Carta here <laughs> of comic book geekdom. And I'm scanning it, and I don't see a single question mark anywhere in here. All righty. Um, but just looking at it right now, it would appear... Well, yeah, he called me out for me accidentally conflating One More Day with Secret War. Fair enough. One More Day was a symptom. Secret War was the, was the real disease. But he's uh, looking at it, he's arguing, not that anybody besides me and him care, he's <laughs> arguing that these were not really big, significant changes to the universe, that everything happened before is still canon. And I say hogwash, honey pie, in the Spider-Man comic book series. Yes. You know, um, the, the Marvel comic book universe is weird because, of course, it's been around since the late 50s and 60s, and yet the characters have only aged like 10 years. So they have to do lots of weird things that, you know, there's always constant current events that are happening, and yet the characters age very, very slowly. Mm. But they do actually age. That's always been one of the things that's so impressive about uh, Marvel comics is they deal with it. And come the, uh, er, the aughts, Spider-Man was probably in his mid-30s. And he'd been married for years. Oh, my gosh. Uh, to Mary Jane Watson. And, oh. you know, he was like a very experienced, seasoned uh, superhero. He was not just what you think of Spider-Man, just, you yeah. know, the, the awkward, gawky teen. He had grown up. Mm-hmm. And he'd been had lots of life experiences and stuff like that. And he was married. And he had problems in his marriage. And, and you know, it, he it's like he had grown up... Well, personally, he'd grown up alongside me. Um, you know, obviously much slower... Uh, but still, you know, it, it kind of he was hitting the same life beats as me, so that was really important. And then Marvel Comics decided, you know what, we need to get back to young funky Peter Parker. We need to get him back to being like in his mid twenties, just straight out of college and going on dates and having all those kinds of young adult problems instead of you know coming up on not quite middle age but getting there kind of thing. Mm. And so they had a storyline where Aunt May had been mortally wounded. And um, and she was dying, and it was actually a really well written thing where uh, Peter Parker, Spider Man, was so desperate to save her, he went to the ends of the earth, and nothing he could do would save her. And ultimately, he decided to literally sell his soul to the devil, to the Marvel comic book equivalent of the devil, Mephisto, um, and said, "Well, you'll you'll save her. What will you do?" And Mephisto said, "Your love with Mary Jane Watson is so pure that I will derive great pleasure." Um, and I will save your May, Aunt May if you agree that you and Mary Jane Watson were never married. 
had never um, gotten married. That's it. That's all I want. And this was basically just the comic book. Ride. And it's just so stupid and cheesy just as a way for them to reset Peter Parker to not be married. Um, but still, he was 30-something years old. Well, no, because at the same time, they and he, he ultimately agreed oh. to do it. Um, he ultimately agreed to do it, and then oh, it's one, more, it's the next day, or one more day was the series where he was just, I just need one more day to save her, and then it was brand new day was, um, or I, I forget, I maybe I'm getting this a little bit wrong, was hey, it's 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 brand new day, and oh, what do you know, they've never been married, and they used to date, but now they're split up, and Peter Parker's just a lot younger now. And it's just, and it's like, oh, I hated it so much. Mm. And that's what I was, I mean, I mentioned it in passing in a previous podcast, and Darren disagrees. He said, well, you know, all the stories are still canon. Gwen Stacy still died. It's just that whenever there was a story about them dealing with their marriage, they were just dealing about their relationship. And, and it's like, no, it's, you can't just take a marriage out of somebody's life and say everything's the same. It's not a little detail. It's everything. And I mean, I, I was just horrible. And so it turned me off for a while. But then eventually they did some other storylines were so cool I came back in. Uh, but then they did the, the basically the same thing for the entire Marvel Universe. So they could just change stuff around. Mm. And um, that was Secret War. And, but, and, you know, and still, Darren is here saying, well, it wasn't that big a deal. All the old stories were still canon. And yet, um, after Secret War, they completely changed Spider-Man. And now he's, he's basically like Iron Man light. Um, because Iron Man is so popular in the movies, they have to make everybody they have to make every character in the comic books a duplicate of Robert Downey Jr. Uh, you know, and they're no longer true to who they were. And I appreciate, it. I understand why they did. Because hey, I was working with Marvel at this time. Mm-hmm. We were making Secret Wars three, and it was going to be awesome. And Greg Pak was our writer, and it was all going. And ah, just drives me nuts. I'm sorry, Darren. You, you and I will have to agree to disagree. These were not little changes. These were significant um, change. The core. Yeah, they, you can say the stories are still the same but they're not they changed the dna underlying it and it was cheap and they didn't need to do that if they wanted peter to get back to a swing and single then let him get divorced and actually tell that story and keep the story going you know be brave um, because so many previous spider-man writers had been brave and were willing to let him grow and change and not keep him in stasis and that's what made marvel special and um and they lost it so they lost me Anyway, sorry, folks. Um, there was nothing personal about that at all. That I'm sure everybody was like, "Where's the fast forward button?" Except for Darren, who's <laughs> like, "You're wrong!" and is um, you know shouting at his uh, podcast player. But let's move on to something that's perhaps a little more universal in appeal. <laughs> you were very patient, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah make mine marble. No longer. Uh, Griffin wonders. Oh yeah, I remember this one. Hi. Uh, this is kind of a deep one about marriage. Sorry if it's a bit long. So, I'm 22 and I've been in a serious relationship for two years. I love the person I'm with and as of right now I'm pretty happy, but I don't know if I'm ready for marriage. There's a lot of societal and family pressure after dating for a while. However, uh, if I'm being honest, I'm just not ready. I'm not sure if it's me, the person I'm with, or the pressure of it all. So my question to you is, did you ever feel this type of pressure? How did you both know you were ready? And do you have any advice for a young person like me at this phase of my life, I know no relationship is perfect, but Jen and um, you, me, have a partnership um, and is honestly, uh, as your partnership, something I look up to with how supportive you are of each other and your passions. Um, hmm. Thank you and have a great month. So I'll let you take that one, honey oh, pie. Oh, well. Okay. So <laughs> you get the heavy lifting. I'll just talk about Spider-Man. <laughs> well, Okay. So basically, I um, knew what I wanted in life. 
pretty much. And I knew that I wanted, from a pretty early age, and it could be because my parents got divorced when I was seven, but I knew that I wanted um, someone in my life that was going to put me first. And when I met Mr. Richard Ham, Hi there. Um, I thought he was pretty good, actually. I thought he was a very considerate and wonderful person, funny, um, handsome, and we got along really well. And also, <laughs> Gert is blocking the microphone. I It'll have to probably speak. work out okay. Do you think if I go through her ear, in one ear and out the other? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing in between them, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I dated a bit in high school, dated a bit in college, and again, I just kind of knew what I was looking for. And I think, um, I call him Duck. I don't think he dated very much. So he probably didn't know what he was looking for, but I did. And anyway, essentially after we'd been dating for a while, I said, listen, this is what I want. Um, I don't expect you to answer me right now, but I just need you to know that this is what I'm looking for, which would be a lifelong partner. And if, if it's, you know, not something you're interested in, that's okay. We're still at the kind of having fun dating stage and everything. Um, well, we were living together. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, you just need to know this is where I'm going. And if you're not going there, you need to tell me. Because I know this is what I want. To which I replied, Gulp! <laughs> and did a comical stretching of my collar. <laughs> and, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I I didn't put any pressure on him, really, I don't think. And But within, I don't know, a month? A couple of weeks? I, you'd have to tell me I don't remember. I don't remember exactly. It's been 28 years since all of this happened, or actually probably more like 30 years since all this happened. Anyway, mm -hmm. in fairly short order, he um, came back and asked me to marry him. And I said, yeah, I think so, yes. Now that you've asked, I say yes. Um, so anyway, basically... This was after her ultimatum, for the record. It wasn't... Okay, yeah, basically it was... <laughs> let me know what your thoughts are, and if your thoughts are not aligned with mine, then we're not a good partnership, and we should move on. I don't think that's really an ultimatum, is it? It's just a clear stating of of what expectations are. So anyway, yes. He asked me to marry him. I said yes, and we got married, I think, within a year or so of that. Mm -hmm. um, bought a house, you know, got a dog, planted some flowers. Anyway, so that's kind of how it happened, and I don't think that there's probably a lot of people who would be that direct with, um, you know, what their thoughts are. I just, I'm not kind of really a, <laughs> I want to say... I can't think of a nice way to say that. I just, I'm very direct that way. So I think it's worked out really well. And it kind of ties in with how I'm able to figure out what's important to me anyway. And um, if something's bothering me, I don't just explode or whatever. I try and go away and think about what it is and and then talk to him about it. So that he's not confronted with the traditional woman thing of, well, if you don't know what it is, then, you know, I can't tell you. Well, no, I can tell you because I've thought about it and it's important to our relationship to discuss what the actual issue is. So, God, that got really off target. Yes. He's feeling a lot of pressure. He's not sure if he's ready. Have you ever felt like that? To which your answer is no. 
I don't feel the pressure. I create the pressure. Yep. So how about you? Did you feel a ton of pressure? I don't remember, unfortunately. I'm sorry. I can't help more, Griffin. I, I know I did not want to get married that young. Um, but I think I just didn't want to hurt her. And I think Jen would confirm I um, am a very, oh, what'd you say? Giving person, self-sacrificial person, put the other people first kind of person. It's kind of the family I come from. And I'm like, okay, well, this is really important to her. And I guess logically I could go either way. I mean, I, there's no reason for me not to. And you completely skipped over. You were, um, you know, you were making um, logic-based lists about insurance premiums going down and, <laughs> uh, you know, shared bank accounts and how much simpler life would be. You were, well, that's true. You were doing a full court press. You kind of breezed over that a little bit. Okay, but also we were living together. We loved each other. We didn't foresee anything changing. Yes, that was the fundamental thing. I mean, I, I had a deep-seated, uh, probably similar to what you're feeling, I had a deep-seated, yeah, I just am not, not, not comfortable with this kind of, I mean, yeah, in much the same way I don't particularly want to get a tattoo because it's an unalterable, never-can-change sort of thing. I did not necessarily want to get married at that point. But um, Jen's, arg I think Macy is mostly, now that she says it, it was her argument that, well, um, you know, do you, how does this change anything? And I'm like, well, no, it, it doesn't really. I mean, I, there's no reason that we would break up. Everything's great. This is going good. I could certainly see this being a long-term thing. Then, then why not? And like, and so for me, I guess it just came down to, you know, I, I can't argue that logic. So let's, let's do it to it. And, uh, that was that. I don't know if that helps or not, but that was our circumstance. And obviously, uh, I don't know that I'd want to offer advice necessarily because you got a big decision to make. All I can do is wish you the best of luck. And we'll move on to the next question, yeah. I think, unless you have anything more you want to say in closing. No, it's, uh, it's hard. And I think it's probably harder for young men maybe than young women. But, yeah, I guess at some point you, <laughs> you take a look at logically, you do your pros and cons lists, and also you think... What's the likelihood that I'm going to find somebody who fits me better than this person? If it's more than 50%, maybe you say no and you keep looking. If it's, you know, 20%, are you going to find somebody? I don't know. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. It's, that's a chance you take and it, there's always the other path you didn't take. So you think, well, would I regret more, say, living by myself and not having a relationship and all of the commitments and wonderful things that happen with that. Or is that worth, you know, settling, say, for a 60% um, fit as opposed to an 80% fit? Or something like that. I don't know. I mean, everybody's got to make those choices for themselves. Sometimes it does help if you bring logic in and try and write things down and, and be really strategic about it, I guess, to bring this slightly more into a game-playing <laughs> theme. Yeah, think about it like a game. <laughs> okay, we've got, you know, person A here who fills 60% of the requirements. Potentially there's other people out there, but maybe this fulfills the most important one. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to tough. say. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. As we move on to Robert, who says uh, we met him and his girlfriend Maureen at uh, Dice Tower West. See attached photo. You folks can't see the photo, but here's oh, the photo. 
Yes, hello. That was lovely. All righty. You look silly in that picture. I was making a silly face. It's true. All righty. Um, they would like to talk about situational famousness, situationally famous, mm. um, or get our thoughts on it because we live a normal day-to-day life where nobody knows us, but then when we go to a convention, suddenly everybody knows us and we are situationally famous. Yes. Um, all righty. So what are your thoughts on that? I find it very awkward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm the kind of person that lays awake at night going, oh, yeah. If I had thought that I was going to be being watched, would I have done that thing? And I spend most of my life not being watched, so I just do whatever I do mm-hmm. and don't worry about it. But like in Vegas, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in particular, we went to a dinner the first night we were there, and it was a lovely dinner, actually, but it was a buffet. And so um, the the server people that were there to help, you know, make sure the um, buffet thingers were full and whatever... There was a some nice sauce that went with the meat, and I wanted to put a little bit of sauce on my plate with my vegetables and my meat so that I could enjoy the sauce. And there wasn't any spoons or anything there to just be able to... There was only the, you know, the tweezer things that let you pick up bits of meat. And so I asked the, the waiter, server guy, um, could I have a, a spoon to get this out? And I... This is the kind of thing I would do because I'm, a, I'm an artist and I'm a designer and I arrange things to suit me. I just can't seem to help it. Um, and hopefully it helps other people in the process, but that might be just my justification. But anyway, so I'm holding up the buffet line while I'm waiting for the guy to come back with the spoons. And he was pretty sharp. So it wasn't like people were starving to death behind me, but it's just, that's, that, that is the sort of thing that I would do anyway. But I think if I had thought for a minute that I'm here as a guest at the dice tower, I'm here as wife of Rado, I am here, you know, people, probably everybody in that room. 50% 50% of them knew who I was, or I am. And, you know, is that the kind of thing that I would really want to to do? Because it's a little bit, um, I don't know. It's a bit too me-focused, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So I that is something I regret doing in that situation, even though I don't think there was anything wrong with it or anything. It was just a little bit kind of socially awkward because, yeah, yeah. Anyway. So, I don't particularly enjoy it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would rather, I would happily be anonymous. When we went to GameStorm last weekend, I did generally, for the first time, try a disguise. (laughs) And I just basically wore a baseball cap and my glasses, because I'm 50 now and I need glasses. Hooray! And just walked around. I still got noticed, but I don't know if I got noticed as much. Um, And that was kind of nice. I, I can understand why, you know, real celebrities go to things and they wear cosplay so that, oh, you're, no one can tell that's George Clooney under that Bugs Bunny mask and stuff like that. <laughs> I think that's pretty clever. Um, Adam, it is what it is. I, I, I totally get people think they know me because they've watched my videos and they see me being all, and, and, I, and I have no problem. I have no qualms or issues at all. With somebody wanting to come up and say, "Hey, I really love your show. It's it's fantastic. It's nice to meet you. It's it's totally cool. I'm I'm perfectly fine with that." Yeah, me too. I'm fine with that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's more the idea of you have to. It's like God's watching you, or something like that. Um, that feeling that you have to maybe be on your super best behavior mm-hmm. um, when just your normal behavior is maybe not quite good enough. Okay. 
They also ask, um, are there any situationally famous people that we would be excited to geek out with if we met them? Or, you know, geek out because we met them. Hmm. Situationally famous? Yes, like us. I mean, that if you went to a particular thing where a person would be noticeable, is there anybody you'd like to hang out with like that? I mean, to me, the uh, uh, you know, uh, um, Kevin Smith, because I think he's hilarious, uh, and uh, Dan Harmon, because I think he's as surprisingly deep. Uh, so I would like to hang out with them. They're both certainly situationally famous. Jen wouldn't recognize either of them. Um, but if you go to the right place, everybody will be fawning all over them. Jen can't think of anything. I'm sorry. No. You wouldn't want to hang out with Dick Francis? <laughs> he's dead. If he were alive. So he's, he's a bit quiet these days. Um, no, I don't... I you wouldn't want to hang out with Dale Chihuly? I think I might be just a bit weirded out. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not very good with fame and stuff. Yep. I mean, people are just people to me, and so, no, I don't... I don't think so. Okie doke then. Moving on, Chris uh, loved to, I said how much of a Beatles fan I am, and he uh, wonders, would I like to see a Beatles-themed board game, and what kind of mechanisms would lend themselves to such a thing? Ugh. I don't know. Um, That's a board game question. Yes, hey, what's that doing in the personal section? I, I Perhaps I miscategorized this. <laughs> uh, but... I don't know. I mean, the obvious thing would be to either, you know, do with like Yellow Submarine and just do some kind of fanciful thing based off the lyrics of some of their songs or, or, or do a, you know. Oh, at GameStorm last week, somebody said, have you seen the movie? I can't remember what it was, but it's basically kind of like Mamma Mia, but with Beatles music. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? Yeah, we saw it. Um, Apparently wasn't very memorable. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I think you said you didn't particularly like it. I liked it. Hmm. Uh, I liked it quite a bit. I can't think of the name of it though. Across the universe, that's what it was. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you could do one that's just about you know the trials and tribulations of a band, uh, you know, kind of you know that grows up and goes through all the different phases. Or, geez, what else would you do? You know, like uh, you know, there's that heavy metal game. That we really yeah. like. Yeah, that was good. Uh, thrash and roll, but just retheme it to the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And you could be a Beatles-like band. Beatles. You know, one of their contemporaries. Mm -hmm. You could be the Turtles. <laughs> um, and the Turtles were the ones who became the worldwide sensation instead of the Beatles. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know that... I, 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 I mean, yeah, thrash and roll was good. So turn that into a Beatles-themed game, I guess. But I don't think there's anything particularly about that that attracts me or mechanism. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I am, Chris, showing a distinct lack of imagination here, which is why I don't think I should be a board game designer because surely that's, uh, that's uh, rich and fertile ground from which to till out a, a game design. But I got nothing for you, buddy. You tell me. And then I'll um, pass judgment on it in the final thoughts. <laughs> okay. Let's see here. Honey Pie. Yes. You went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando. I, except not. No. It was in Los Angeles. It yeah. But it was still the Wizarding World, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, how did you enjoy the experience? Or maybe it was Hogwarts. It was it was Hogsmeade in Hogwarts. It yes. wasn't Wizarding World. Okay. I don't know. You if went to whatever the you you went to a theme park in the Los Angeles area based on Harry Potter. Yes. 
I don't so, know. I don't know if that's different than what he said, but still, the question remains. How yes. did you like the experience and what were your favorite parts? Okay. Well, it was really cool to look at the props and all of that. It was really neat to see the Hogwarts up on the hill because the perspective that those artists did when they built that up there, it was amazing. You felt like you were looking at Hogwarts. Um, so yeah, I think in general, the whole thing was, was beautifully done, themed wonderfully, felt like you were there, all that kind of stuff. Um, there was, there were other characters, you know, like the a choir with singing toads and things like that. And that was nice, um, to have that there. Um, the rides were pretty good. I thought very enjoyable. I was there with my niece and nephew and my sister. So we had a good time. Um, it was very expensive to go and, when it comes down to it, the whole theme park was basically just a big shopping mall. So I found that really disappointing. Um, yeah, because it was like $100 a day or $150 a day or something like that to get into this essentially shopping mall. Um, so that was really, really disappointing. Uh, would I go back? I don't know. I've, I've sort of wondered, am I just too old for this now? I'm not sure. I'm, we're going to go to England and we will go to the Harry Potter thing that's there. Harry Potter World in, in England. Because I'll be there again next in the summer with my niece and nephew and sister. Um, so that'll be fun. I guess at, at the end of that I can say if I'm done with this sort of theme parky thing or not. But yeah, it was crazy. Butterbeer. I wanted to try Butterbeer, but they had it there for... I think $8 for a plastic cup of it or $13 if you got the commemorative um, plastic mug for it. And it's basically cream soda. I, you know, I don't know. I just, I felt a bit nickel and dimed, I guess. And I wanted to feel magical and encompassed. So, sorry. All right. They had a great time. They loved all the shopping. Each one of the shops had different stuff in it. So, of course, we went into all of them. Um, my, my nephew especially is a shopper or a looker, maybe likes to look at all the stuff. Um, anyway, it was a good time though. I was, I'm glad I did it. Okay. I did my Spider-Man rant. You've done your Harry Potter rant. Next up, Alexander wonders if you could only eat one ethnicity's food for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Oh my gosh. Well, does he get to pick one ethnicity and I get to pick one ethnicity and we can... No. Oh. Whatever mine is, you can't have any of mine, and I can't have any of yours. Oh, we've got separate but equal food? Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, God, that's really hard, because I love all kinds of flavors. Pick one. You must pick one. Alexander has demanded it. Mm. Are you going to pick Mexican? Um, I would probably go with either Mexican, Italian, or, I don't know if it's cheating, but to just say American. Well, American kind of covers everything, doesn't it? Yeah, but I mean, there's things that are like more distinctly American. I mean, sure, you can get a steak anywhere, you can get a burger anywhere, but yeah, like burgers and fries, that's that's a pretty Americana type thing. Yeah, there are certain things that yeah, you could get apple pie anywhere, but I mean, that's American cuisine. So, yeah, it's tough. It'd be one of those three, and I, again, I think maybe American one is cheating, uh, especially as he said ethnicity. Yeah. Although I think it's better just to say country. Um. But I. And you don't care about carbs and stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, we're not worried about the health effects of the diet. I, I guess you could be. You did, uh, Alex did not specify. Hmm. No. So, but you're not saying Ethiopian then? Well, I don't think Ethiopian for the rest of my life is the only thing I can ever eat. It's doable. Mm hmm. Well, Whereas, you millions know. Millions of Ethiopians do it. Yeah, that's true. But 
let's say Italian with all of the pastas and the pizza and the. Yep, with all the carbs, you mean? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I can't choose that because of all the carbs. Um, would I love Mexican? I could probably eat Mexican. Yeah, every day I, for the rest of my life. Yeah, I would think so. That's a, that's not a, that's not a bad one. Yeah, I love avocado. Mm. All righty. Uh, next up, we're back to Grady. And Grady uh, wonders, or points out that we gave a tour of Gozo. Is there any chance of getting a similar tour of the area that we now live in? Gosh. He's not saying we should start a YouTube travel channel, um, of course. Um, Gozo was really a special place, and so is Malta, also a special place. I mean, it's had thousands of years of history and amazing stuff going on there. Washington is beautiful. Um, and I guess maybe after we've lived here a couple of years, we might have cool places that, like, a local knowledge. That's possible. I can't, I, I don't think so. I, I, I'm... One, I don't think Jen would necessarily want to do... The problem we did with the Gozo thing was it allowed everybody to know exactly where we lived. And Jen had a big problem with that. So she wants to keep that secretive. So right off the bat, we can't really do anything about where we are directly. And, I mean, you know, really, the uh, southern Washington, Vancouver area is not that exciting. <laughs> it is just not Aww. that... It is, it is just pretty uh, straightforward. It's a nice um, place to live. It's, yeah. it's, it's totally fine. So I, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. Like you said, I mean, I, and it's not that there aren't attractions here, but I, you know, this is pretty just bog standard suburbia, endless miles of strip malls and Walmart type stuff. Yeah, that's true. I mean, downtown Vancouver is nice and it has a little bit of quirky nature to it, but. Yeah, and know. Portland's really cool. Yeah, but we don't live in Portland. No. Nope. Yeah, I mean, Portland's like a half hour away or longer. I don't know. Shouldn't get into too much detail. People are already triangulating. Um, <laughs> let's see here. So, uh, I believe there have been a couple times that I've criticized mountain climbers for taking unnecessary risks to accomplish something that is not important. However, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that I'm a strong supporter that people should live their lives in the way that makes, makes them feel happy and fulfilled. So, if climbing um, to a top to bring a person joy and fulfillment, why shouldn't that person pursue the accomplishment? Otherwise, what are your thoughts on taking risks to find happiness? I got no problem with that at all. I think either I misspoke or you misheard. What I was saying uh, specifically was I have a very, very hard time finding finding myself getting invested in dramatic narratives about mountain climbers and the travails and dangers that they face, uh, because you know there have been a string of them over the years, and they're generally very highly regarded and you know triumphs of the human spirit in the face of adversity and all that i'm not having a problem with the fact that somebody wants to find fulfillment through climbing a mountain i find a problem with the fact that somebody wants to um champion that as uh examples of perseverance of the human spirit i would rather um those documentarians uh you know follow uh, uh, you know, health workers in war-torn countries and, you know, how they overcome impossible odds. Those are the ones that I think are ones that we should trumpet and champion in our popular culture. Uh, I appreciate why mountain climbing specifically is one that is very, very easy because it's just such an implicitly dramatic narrative with man versus nature and the ultimate test of self-reliance or the ultimate test of teamwork, depending on what type of narrative you're trying to make. <laughs> but 
but to me personally, it is a silly endeavor and does not warrant the gravitas it is given. That is not to say that I believe, therefore, that they shouldn't do it. If that's what gives them personal fulfillment and meaning in their life, that's great. More power to it. I have more of a problem with the, the almost fetishization of it, uh, which, is, uh, which is not fair either. That's an exaggeration. But that's kind of... I'm just saying I have a hard time getting invested in those types of narratives because they strike me as silly um, and you know unnecessary. I don't know if that answers the question, but we will move on unless Jen has something to say about that. I am thinking about that Adams Ruins Everything. Mm-hmm. Where he talked about how much fecal matter and human waste is oh, on Mount Everest. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, how many tons of used oxygen canisters and everything is up there. It just seems like um, yeah. there's not... If you're going to take that kind of a journey, don't leave a bunch of rubbish behind for everybody else to have to deal with. Um, and that just... That was fine when Edmund Hillary did it, well, like seventy years ago or whenever it was. Mm-hmm. But now it's 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 an industry, and you don't even have to be fit and um, make it your lifelong goal to do it anymore. So I I don't know. I just I don't know. Okay. I think there's a lot of hidden costs involved in stuff like that too that we're not maybe we're only now becoming aware of, such as the huge amount of excrement problem. I mean, it's poisoning lakes nearby that the Nepalese have to drink out of when it thaws. It's just... (laughs) I say. Anyway, check out Adam's Ruins Everything if you want more details on that. Yes. Uh, uh, Chris wonders, different Chris, what is the deal with the fish truck in Malta? I've heard it too on two past <laughs> podcasts. Is it like an ice cream truck no. selling fish door to door? Yeah, I guess it's a it's a fishmonger that goes around in his truck and he yells as he's going by. My guy, the, the lungs on this person is they're amazing. Um, yeah, he was he was pretty cool, and lots of people would come out from their house and they would buy their fish fish for the day. But the nice thing about Malta was they actually had mobile um, grocery store trucks also that went around. And so you could, you could twice a week, there would be a grocery van in your neighborhood and you could go out and get whatever you needed. Or if you needed particular things like, um, I, I like cream in my tea. So I would have the guy, you know, stock his truck with cream and I would go and buy it and get some fresh vegetables and, I needed paper towels or, you know, whatever it was that I needed that day. I, I knew when the guy was going to be there and he was always there. And if I, yeah, it's very convenient. Very convenient. Yeah. It was nice. But we never bought any fish from the fish truck. No, I, we didn't. That would have been. But somebody must have. Yeah. yeah he was there shopping every day. Well, not every day, but. Lampookie. Yeah. And I don't know what else he was saying, but it was. Lampookie. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever else he was saying. Yes, it was definitely a daily event at our house. We we liked Lampuki. It's a great name. If yes. we ever have a maybe next dog, we can name him Lampuki. Chris also notes that in a past episode, I mentioned my favorite childhood cartoon was Thundar the Barbarian. Chris was also a fan, and he asked, "Can I recall if Thundar had a pterodactyl type bird that Ooh, helped him on occasion?" I like pterodactyls. Uh, I think it may have been named Zok. 
Um, I was reading this and I was uh, racking my brains while Jen was talking about the fish truck. I'm sorry, Chris. I think you must be misremembering. That must be a different show. I mean, I, I am far from a Thundar scholar, <laughs> um, but... Can't you, you just know, Google it? Uh, I, um, well, I'm sure. I would imagine Chris would have tried. And I'm his last... Uh, his last his, hope? His last hope, riding <laughs> Zoc. That must be a different show. Because um, it's just Ariel and Ukla, and they ride on their horses and whatever that weird thing that Ukla had. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I can... Have I, have I done the entire intro to Thunder the Barbarian on the podcast before? I think you should do it now. <laughs> Go for it. The year is 1994. From outer space comes a runaway planet hurtling between the Earth and the Moon, unleashing cosmic destruction. Uh, 2000... Or mankind's... Ru- oh, wait, okay. No, I, got, I need to be in the mood. All right. All right, let's see. The year is 1994. From outer space comes a runaway planet hurtling between the Earth and the Moon, unleashing cosmic destruction. Mankind's civilization is cast in ruins. 2,000 years later, Earth is reborn. A strange new world rises from the old. A world of savagery, super science, and sorcery. But one man bursts his bonds to fight for justice. With his companions, Ukla the Mock and Princess Ariel, he pits his strength, his courage, and his fabulous sun sword against the forces of evil. He is Thundar, the Barbarian! Yeah, I, I like Thundar a lot. And there was no pterodactyl. <laughs> Prove me wrong, Internet. Prove me wrong. Okay, moving on to uh, Dimitri. We're back to Dimitri. He has a personal question, uh, if we're comfortable to answer. Uh, could we describe our um, income in a year in percentages? He is curious how we fund our lifestyle. For example, 20% stocks, 10% dividends, 40% property, uh, 10% rotto, 10% glass, 10% other, etc. Jen is looking off in the distance and shaking her head no. <laughs> I don't know. I would Are you to... saying no you can't or no you won't? I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. I mean, you could you do have it. I mean, Jen is um, I'm meticulous. A, I'm a quick and about, kind of girl. Um, yeah, uh, labeling everything. I was just doing that earlier today. Yep. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that off the top of my head. I would have to think about if I'm comfortable sharing that level of detail. So should Dimitri ask again next month? Um, he can ask. Just... He can ask next month, and I'll think about it between now and then. Okay. Um, and I, I imagine we've answered this before, but perhaps we'll come up with a different answer. What did we miss most from Europe? Ooh. Europe as a whole. All of it. I think most people were asking Malt. Okay. Stuff. So. In all of Europe, dumb honey, what do you miss? <laughs> um, I think what I miss is, um, this is going to sound pretty bad. Yeah, this is going to sound pretty bad, but I miss our lives, our freedom, our lack of responsibility. What do you mean? Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. So. Because uh, we're not responsible for our parents. You know, obviously everybody knows about my mom. I assume you don't want to go into it, but there's other stuff going on. So we'll just leave it at that. And uh, yeah, yes. our personal lives were simpler. Yeah, we had, we, we had a very carefree, lovely existence. And we do not have that right now. Yeah, we have cares now. Yep. Yep. All right. Fair enough. That's a good answer. Good answer. What do you miss? Uh, well, that, I guess. <laughs> it's kind of tough to top. I was going to say... Bestizies, but it's not quite the same. <laughs> the ice cream from Busy Bee. <laughs> yeah, the Busy Bee uh, vanilla ice cream, the best vanilla ice cream in the world. 
Um, yeah, you seem to be testing every ice cream joint in the area, so I'm yeah. sure you'll find something good. No, I, I don't know that I really miss that much. I'm, I'm pretty happy go lucky wherever I am when it boils right down to it. Just make the best of it. But Jen's answer is good. I'll go with that. Okay. Nathan, uh, uh, I'm not quite sure if this is a question, but I'll just read it verbatim. Nathan says, in re-vegetarianism, lab-grown meat, question mark? Fake meat, fake meat, parenthesis, assuming taste, slash texture, slash protein, etc., end parenthesis. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's, uh, <laughs> okay. Answer the question. <laughs> There's no question mark. There was a question mark after lab-grown oh, meat, question mark, oh. as you can see. Okay, well, actually, I was listening to um, <clears throat> a podcast. I think it was um, a Freakonomics podcast, actually, about... Mm -hmm. Um, this new lab-grown meat that that they're testing actually in New York City and a couple of other places, and that you know people actually can't tell the difference between the two. Um, so that is kind of interesting, actually. I would certainly try it. Um, I would taste it and see what it tastes like. You've gotten rid of the the, the rest question? of it. yeah, because I I was kind of reading it. Lab-grown oh. meat. I guess I guess he's asking, would we try it? So I would say yes, I would. Yeah. Um, fake meat. Is that? I'm assuming that's that like, like tofu meat kind of stuff. Tofurky and stuff. I, um, yeah, there was what was it? I was just looking at the other day that sounded really good until I got to looking at the ingredient list, and it was a replacement for. God, I think it might be for cream. Uh, you know, like for my tea, and. Yeah, I think it was because it was something like, you know, don't have the cows be um, kept pregnant because, of course, you have to have a pregnant cow to get milk and hence cream and cheese. Um, so, yeah, they had worked around that. And but so what they had what they'd made the ingredients out of mainly was the safflower oil. So apparently it tastes fine and it's got all sorts of good stuff in it for you. I mean, they've they've stuffed it full of vitamins and whatever but the bottom line is now you're eating vegetable oil instead of dairy fat and that's just not good for you so i was all excited about it until i finally got was able to drill down on what the ingredients are mm. and it's available at fred meyer in the um oh, really? near that place we got the chickens and i was going to stop and get some and try it but then i thought i'm not i'm not putting that in my body mm -hmm. it is unnatural yeah so um as far as fake products, I guess if they'd made it with olive oil, I would have been happy to give it a try. Yeah. All right. But I'm not. I'm not for veg oils. Okay. And um, if you want to know more, Nathan, try a few extra words in a sentence format. <laughs> oh snap! I I don't know quite exactly. Slam down on Nathan, everybody! <laughs> Jump on board! It's. Did you say it was Nathan who asked that? It's, did it's, I just did I blow his cover? Uh, well, no, I'm not saying who Nathan is. There's probably uh, at least three people who watch my show named Nathan. Okay. And one of them is written. Yeah, and there's probably at least a hundred thousand Nathans in the world. So yeah. hopefully, exactly two hundred thousand. That's it. Um, Nathan, I am pro lab grown meat. I am very excited about our lab grown meat future. Bring it on, I say. Even if it leads to a ten percent drop in. Uh, overall taste and texture quality, I will happily sign up for 
lab-grown bacon. I am there with bells on if uh, once they nail that business. That's great. Although that said, you know, in the interim, boy, I really wish more people would listen to uh, you know Alan Savory about you know you know proper herd management and how. We could we could do go a long way towards reversing a lot of the ill effects of climate change if we would adopt, um, you know this you know you remember seeing that TED talk of his you know about how the the natural systems are that you know cattle is supposed to you know basically churn up the plains and yeah. whatnot and you know and and uh, get the nitrogen back into the soil and all that and you know the and the huge success he's had in the past um, you know so you know rather than our factory farming which is just Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's just it's just oh. evil. It's just plain evil. Yes. Which is why um, we're so happy. One of the one of the big things uh, that's nice about being here is it's certainly easy in America to know exactly where your meat comes from, mm-hmm. and so we pay extra to to ensure it's all ethically sourced, and you know all the animals have you know good lives until until they meet their maker. <laughs> um. So yeah, but in the meantime, yeah, bring it on, bring on the lab grown meat. I am all about that business. Very excited. I'm sure they'll nail it. Science for the win. Meanwhile, uh, D says, D doesn't have a question, just a tip to um, check out Our Planet on Netflix, which is actually, it, it, it's launching this week. Yep, I'm already on it, D. Uh, excited for watching it. It's just, uh, it's although actually I, I do have kind of mixed feelings about it. Um, I don't know if Jen will want to watch it because if I recall correctly, I believe it's it's another, you know, uh, sir, you know uh, David Attenborough narrated. Look at all this amazing stuff, but it's specifically one about how the world. Uh, it's it's getting so much more difficult for the animals in the in the climate oh. change world. So I expect it'll be pretty freaking depressing. Yeah, I um, still have a problem every time I look at a polar bear because of a thing like that that was talking about. Yeah. How they're... So I mean, I'm sure it'll be amazing and equal parts heartwarming and equal parts heartbreaking. But I do wonder how the overall huge depression level will be. I mean, you know, and it's important and it's great and I respect and admire it. But uh, I, I do worry about it a little bit that it won't be quite as carefree as the previous ones. But yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be all, we'll be all over that business. Yeah, and we, we still need to watch it. Yep, yep. Yep, everybody needs to watch it. Okay. Oh my God, look at this. I will this look at that. Little, I gave Gerd a bath because yes. of... And I'm just like covered in white hair. Mm-hmm. Yes, you are. There we go. All right, Honey Pie, we're back to Harry Potter. Oh. Because uh, Yarnus wants to know, if you could be one Ow. Harry Potter character, who would you like to be? Um, Ooh. Well, and, Hermione, of course. Well, I mean, I would, I, would, I would add that, I mean, you could be any character and, you know, I mean, you, you could be uh, Harriet, or Harriet Potter. <laughs> and you could be... Okay. Um... Um, Rhonda Weasley. <laughs> um, Rondella. You know, yeah, and I could be, uh, you know, Henry Granger. Okay. So, yeah, which character in the universe would you want to be? Uh, and if you were still Jen, uh, but you were married to a Harry Potter character instead of me, who would you choose? So that's two questions. Who would you want to be? Who would you want to marry? So... Well, I'd like to think I'm clever enough to be the Hermione character. Uh-huh. I think that... And, so you want to be Hermione anyway. In spite, and... Yeah. Yeah, all of the things I really admire that character. Um, now, if I was and if I was Hermione, to, would, would, would you, I want to marry you? Would you? No, no, no. The question is, who would you want to be? And so you said Hermione. Yeah. Um, even though you could be, um, I can't think of a female name for Neville um, or what have you. Mm. Not that you want to be Neville. Who wants to be Neville? Even though he is the chosen one. 
Um, but um, the other question, independent of that, was again, you know, assuming the sex of the character would change to meet your particular specifications, who would you want to marry? So uh, you know, not based on you know, you don't have to marry. You could marry Hermione because it would be Henry Granger. Yeah. In the Adventures of the Clever of um, Harriet Potter. So who would I marry in that universe? Um, let me think about that for a minute. And it doesn't have to be kids. Yeah, it could I be know. adults. You just completely no, no. ignored all the adults. No, no, no. Just no. to be Hermione. No. Um, because actually, I the first name that pops up is Arthur Weasley, actually. You want to marry Arthur Weasley? Yeah, I mean, a younger, sexier Arthur Weasley, of uh -huh. course. But I really like everything he stood for. And... Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking Sirius, no. Lupin, no. You know, just kind of going through everybody. No, I think... Well, it could be a kid. and You imagine they grow up. Yeah. Um, and again, you could choose the female characters too because they'd be male characters. No, I think Arthur Weasley would be my man. Arthur Weasley. All right. The Arthur Weasley character. Yep. Good call. Hey, I respect and admire that call. All right. Hi, Gert. Gert, I was told you'd be calm. She is calm. She's just been napping on my lap for All right, like well, an hour. That's not what she's doing now. She's giving licks. All righty. Uh, Gerald has Wait, one... you didn't answer it. No, it, he said a question for Jen. Oh. He didn't ask me. All right. He doesn't care who I want to marry <laughs> or kill or do the other thing. Um, there was no kill. There was no kill. No. it's uh, Perhaps it's a pop culture reference you aren't aware of. All right. Well... Um, Gert. Uh, Gert, could you please just not knock over the camera? There's just any number of places you could walk here. She says, I know, but the master's lab is currently occupied by Daisy. Okay. Hi. Let's see here. Um, right, so Gerald asks if uh, you had to pick one name for all your friends to call you. So I guess this is for me. Which one would I choose? Duck, Ducky, Rich, Richard, or Rada? And does Jen have a nickname which she would prefer for yourself? Um, Jen or Jennifer is fine. Not Jenny. Um, Jen tried to get Jenna to take off back in her 20s, and no one was biting. <laughs> yeah, including you. Yep. yep. But, you know, if, if you could uh, wave your magic uh, Hermione wand and make everybody call you Jenna, would you go for that? No. I like Jen or Jennifer. All right. Um, yeah, that's it for me. Right. And so am I, I have to pick one name that everybody's going to call me. Um, uh, let's see. Well, you forgot a very important one. Ra, R-A-H, my initials, which is what my entire family's called me my entire life. And what my mom still calls me to this day. Uh, all right. So, but you didn't include that in the list. So we'll, we'll strike that one from the record. And there goes Daisy out barking at stuff. Yep. You know, um, it's also getting dark. We got to get the chickens in pretty soon. Yep, yep, yep. How, we got four more questions. Uh, we got four more people asking. I will make a snap decision and say duck because Jen likes uh, calling me duck. All righty. Into the spider verse. But you want everybody in the world to call you duck? I had to make a snap decision. Oh, just go with Richard. Nope, it's duck. Everybody call me duck. All righty. Um, Sam wonders. Uh, since I love Spider-Man so much, uh, have I seen I Into the Spider-Verse? If so, what are my thoughts? Uh, it was a huge hit with our boys who want to be Miles Morales. 
I have seen it. Jen okay. has not. How about if I go it put the chickens in while you do this? Awesome. Uh, alrighty, but well, hold on a second. There might be ones for you. Oh, we'll, we'll get through it. We're just, it's going to be another. It's going to be another eight minutes. Okay. Alrighty. My thoughts were it was awesome. It was great. Uh, it was. Uh, it wasn't until the movie was halfway over that I was afraid there was something wrong with my TV for the reasons anybody knows if they've seen it. And uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, the the way the prowler was handled was awesome. Uh, it did suffer from final act boss fight itis. That was a bit of a letdown. That was its only misstep. Uh, but otherwise, great, great stuff. Loved it. Well done. Across the board. Made me a fan of Miles Morales. Yes. Uh, Melanie says that if watching TV shows is my favorite thing to do, what are some of the streaming series we're watching? Do we tend to binge watch shows or watch slowly over time? Binge! I prefer to watch slowly over time. I think binging weakens the overall impact of a show. I do not think it's a good way to go. I, I am not a fan of Netflix for kind of making that the going forward standard. But Jen loves it. I do love it. And uh, I could make a long list of shows that I watch. I wonder if there's a way I can share that. Because I track everything that we watch on uh, next-episode.net, which is a great site. And, oh my God, it just, it's, just, it's just, what don't I watch? What do, it, I'm sorry, it's too long. It's getting dark, Melanie. Ask again next month, and we'll do this at a reasonable time. Or we'll do this in a room where we actually have light. And it's not getting dark, and you're not being reminded of the chickens. So ask me again, Melanie. I'll give you a list next well, time. Well, in a month from now, they'll be older, and they can be coming in and out as they wish. Indeed. Right now, they're in a little cage out in the garden, and i got to put them in. Yep. Now that we're back in the U.S., is there any regional food that we uh, miss from Malta? Pastizis were good. Yeah, it's pastizis across the board. They were amazing. Anything you couldn't eat in Malta that you were enjoying now that you're back? Uh, Mexican food. Yeah. No, although there was a guy that was yes, on Gozo true. who was a Mexican. And he moved there with his Maltese wife. And he had a food truck. And oh my goodness. He, he was very good. You're he right. was so good. So I have to take that back. I, when, you know, he had shown up, I think, six months before we left. And nah, we were not missing year. Mexican about a year. with him. Yeah. We, 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 were, we were one of his most uh, frequent regulars. <laughs> yeah, we'd go see him at least a couple times yep. a month. Three, four times a month sometimes. Yeah, it was good stuff. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, honey pie. Uh, um, Christian and his wife are picking up a new puppy in two days. <gasps> and that is literally so today they are picking up a puppy. <gasps> it's their first dog since being kids. And they're uh, watching YouTube videos about how to care and uh, raise them. Uh, it seems overwhelming. Uh, Can I suggest they may a be name? overthinking it. What's the name, honey? Lampuki. Lampuki is the suggested name. What is your experience with puppies? What are some key must-do things with new puppies? Oh my gosh, that is a huge question. Well, you got to answer today because they're getting it today. You can't oh. wait a month. Well, first of all, love it, love it, love it, love it. Um, I think you'd be prepared to go outside a lot because puppies don't have very big bladders. Um, don't. Obviously, hit it when it does pee on your carpets and stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I think that'll uh, a lot of this just common sense stuff. It'll just take over when you when you when you've got a, her him. Um, what would you say the most important thing? Uh, whatever you did with Dob, because Dob is much better behaved than these mongrels. Yeah, Dob had. I think I'd read some dog books when we first got our our first dog. And I made her, there was a lot of boundaries. But she was a different kind of dog, too. Beagles are independent thinkers. 
Um, Lhasa Opsos are palace guard dogs, and they care about their masters. Beagles, not so much. Mm-hmm. Beagles care about food. Well, um, I guess the easiest thing to say <laughs> is we are both um, big proponents of the Caesar way. Yeah, that's true. Yep. And, uh, you know, the rules, boundaries, limitations, and all of his catchphrases we have found have been valuable tools. So we're big fans, big proponents. Good luck with little Lampuki. Okay, and the last question from Cindy. Uh, she's wondering, speaking of beagles, what, what happens to the beagles when we travel? Assuming they're left with a pet sitter, do they misbehave? How do they react when we come back? Um, well, one of the benefits of living with Bobby is that she looks after the pups while we're away. So that is very convenient, obviously. We have a live-in pet sitter. Yep. Um, before, uh, we had a live-in pet sitter as well. It was a wonderful woman named um, Katie, and she actually would come over from Malta and live in our house and look after our pups and our chickens and water my plants and have a little gozo holiday, she would call it. So she was awesome. Really lovely lady. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay, well. Oh, there... how, and how are they when we get back? They, they seem to be fine. Yeah. Yep. They seem okay. Well, we are proponents of the Caesar. Don't make a big deal when you come in. Oh, yeah. And, just and do don't it. make a big deal when you leave. You just, yep. you just come and go as the head dog would. Yep, yep. It's no big deal. Nothing to get excited about. But they get excited, and that's reassuring because dogs are awesome. Yeah. Um, all right, folks, that's it. All done. Time to put the chickens away. Uh, so thank you. That was, seems like a lot more questions than normal. Yeah, and actually, we didn't even talk about chickens. But maybe somebody will care and write in a question next Send time. all your chicken questions to questions at rotto.com, and we will cover them next month. And uh, otherwise, thanks for listening, everybody. Have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. And bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.